Hey, you're listening to Unlimited Hangout, a podcast hosted by Whitney Webb. This is my first episode, which will be focused on my new investigative series co-authored with Raul Diego, Engineering Contagion, Amerithrax Coronavirus, and the Rise of the Biotech Industrial Complex. And today we'll be specifically focusing on part one of that series, which is entitled All Roads Lead to Dark Winter. To discuss this and more, I'm joined by Robbie Martin of the Media Roots podcast, Meme Politics, and the creator of the documentary film series, A Very Heavy Agenda. But before we get into the topic at hand, Robbie just put out an amazing two-part podcast mini-series on the newest neoconservative apparatus that is now dominating major parts of the media sphere with regards to coronavirus. And there are a lot of disturbing links between these new groups and the dark winter crowd we'll be getting to here in a moment. So Robbie, can you give us a quick summary about your new mini-series? Hey Whitney, thanks for having me on the first episode of your new podcast. Um... Yeah, so my new series um, is tracking the activities of uh, this think tank called the Committee on the Present Danger. Uh, It's a think tank that has existed um, several times before um, in recent history. Uh, It first existed in the 1950s. Um, It was seemingly most influential during the Reagan administration when 33 of its members uh, went inside the Reagan administration, including Richard Pearl, um, CIA director William Casey, um, and a bunch of other very uh, like household names from the Reagan administration. But right now, this uh, same committee has reopened, specifically this time, to wage asymmetrical warfare against China and to drum up all this anti-Chinese sentiment um, in the, basically the same way that they wanted to end detente with the Soviet Union when they existed during the Reagan administration. This time, they want to wage trade war with China. Um, they want to you know, stop what they call China's aggressive military moves in the South China Sea. Uh, they want to wage cyber warfare against China. And they also want to force China into paying reparations for COVID-19. Um, that's the newest piece of uh, rhetoric that they're pushing. Um, the Henry Jackson Society, actually, um, which is obviously named after Scoop Jackson, a very influential Democrat neoconservative uh, in the UK, are actually uh, filing an official lawsuit against the Chinese government right now for something like $7.3 trillion in damages for COVID-19 wow. reparations. So this is actually a narrative that's that's taking hold. And the Committee on the Present Danger China was actually the first neoconservative organization or the first organization really pushing for this idea that we need to send some kind of weapons inspectors or inspectors into China and demand answers for what's in this bio four level safety lab in Wuhan. Um, and of course, Oh, that sounds so much like oh, yeah, Iraq. Send in the weapons inspectors. There's WMDs. Oh, so straight up from the same playbook and the people in it are some of the more fringy old school project for the new American century people such as James Woolsey, Frank Gaffney, um, and uh, what's another one? Um, William Bennett, um, and uh, other people who don't really normally associate or you don't associate with neoconservatism at all, like Steve Bannon. Steve Bannon actually uh, is responsible for relaunching this think tank and getting together this group of people. So somehow Steve Bannon, this anti-neocon, you know, fierce critic of neoconservatism, this so-called nationalist, is bringing together all these neoconservatives from the Reagan era and uh, and adopting a lot of their tactics. 
Um, and when you hear him talk about China, he sounds a lot like, like Robert Kagan talking about Russia. Um, it's very interesting. So, uh, yeah, so this podcast, I basically go over what this think tank has been doing, um, how they're pushing all this anti-Chinese propaganda right now, and also how they've been planting the seeds for this idea that COVID-19 is a Chinese bioweapon and or it escaped from a Chinese lab and we need to stop China. <laughs> right. Well, you know, what's really crazy about that narrative is that, um, and, and I think we've talked about this a little bit privately, and I had an, an article about this back in January, is that that claim uh, originated first with Radio Free Asia, which is, you know, U.S. state government funded media. Um, a lot, it used to be mm. run openly by the CIA back in the day. And uh, after that, it was the Washington, I think it was the Washington Times or the Washington Examiner, uh, one of those um, outlets. And it quoted this former um, Israeli military intelligence official as saying that this lab, this Institute of Urology in Wuhan may have had some association with the bioweapons program, alleged bioweapons program of China. And what's crazy is that the headline of that article says, um, you know, this medical expert or WMD expert says that the virus leaked from the lab. But if you actually read what the guy says, he doesn't actually say that. He uses all these weasel words like, oh, well, it may have had some sort of potential role in a, you know, theoretical bioweapons program. You know, it's like very not yeah. the complete opposite of what the headline says, basically, in terms of like it's how definitive it is. And what's also crazy is that this guy who was making this this claim, the so, so-called expert, Danny Shoham, um, is actually one of the guys yeah. that tried to pin the 2001 anthrax attacks we're going to be talking about a lot today on um, on Iraq and Saddam Hussein, right? Which is like a super discredited oh. theory. And so why are we listening to this okay. guy again, you know? Um, and, and since then, we're seeing, you know, these organizations, which have a lot of ties to the people that are also have connections to the anthrax attacks, things that were going on at 9-11, and, and the Bush administration in general, um, now pushing a, a similar narrative where China is, you know, really starting to look like the new Iraq for these people, which is really crazy um, to think about, very disconcerting. Yeah, and this is something, Whitney, that, you know, in doing your research for Operation Dark Winter, I'm sure you've already seen a lot of stuff like this. Is This is a narrative that's been kicking around in these national security s circles and these, you know, these people who imagine all these nightmare scenarios and that's their, you know, their way that they fantasize about things and what gets them off. These people have been kicking around this theory forever that a, you know, a nation state like China or Russia would somehow allow or sell on the black market because, you know, they're evil. They're not like the U.S. They they do things like they'll sell on the black market their bioweapons that they make <laughs> in their secret labs to terrorists. Oh, man. You know, yeah. And let them run roughshod uh, uh, on whoever with their bioweapons. You know, that kind of narrative has been around forever. And I think that we're just starting to see it being resurrected now, um, essentially against China, that it's like, you know, and even the Judith Miller a germs novel, not only does it say that, you know, Al-Qaeda could launch some kind of anthrax attack against the United States, but it theorizes that if they do it, they might do it with the aid of of uh, Iraq, um, you know, their program, or even the program of uh, Russia, like an old former Soviet program, or maybe even a Chinese program. So these are all, you know, it's sort of like a bunch of checkboxes that these national security paranoids already are thinking about constantly already, 
And so yeah. we're just seeing like a propaganda push of that. So these theories, you know, who, who the hell knows how often they're being talked about behind the scenes. We're just, so we're just getting a glimpse now of them right. leaking out. And there's an obvious coordinated push to get people to believe this. And that's what's frightening is because they're doing it during a time where everybody's fucking freaked out. So what's really crazy about what you brought up is that these claims about um, these people that like spend their careers fantasizing about horrible ways for people to potentially die and these horrible <laughs> things they think these other rival governments might do. A guy I talk about a lot in my series who's actually a key part of coronavirus, uh, the, the federal government's coronavirus response. He's actually leading the coronavirus response of the entire Department of Health and Human Services right now, a guy named Robert Cadlick. I'll be talking about him in part three in my series, but he wrote a whole book about these theoretical, oh, sorry, several book chapters, and the book chapters themselves just can, contain theoretical doomsday scenario after doomsday scenario. And in one of these, he talks about China using corn terrorism, uh, which is his term for it, where they basically go and they um, use a, a weapon, a bioweapon targeted towards crops to uh, weaken the corn production in the United States so China can corner the corn market, right? And what's crazy is that Dark Winter... It, early on in the scenario, um, the war, you know, the war game Dark Winter we're going to be talking about today, uh, they actually talk about how China uh, appears to have intentionally introduced foot and mouth disease in Taiwan to decimate their pork production so they can corner the pork market, right? And so it's really interesting to see how narratives like that are sort of being used now um, about coronavirus by a lot of the same uh, people that are, you know, also connected to this the same sort of national security clique, huh? But uh, I thought it was kind of funny, corn terrorism, pork terrorism. Um, just just wild to think these people have been thinking about this stuff for so long and none of that stuff ever happened. These are They're literally just like thinking up these doomsday scenarios saying they're going to happen all the time. They used to be, you know, thinking about these with Iraq and then, oh, it turns out Iraq doesn't have any of these biological weapons. You know, it's just, uh, it's nuts. It is, yeah. And it's, and when you actually listen to them talk about these fantasy scenarios they have, about these terrible things that can happen, you know, they often just sound really insane and delusional. I mean... I used a, uh, I played a clip of James Woolsey, um, former Project for the New American Century member and former CIA director, t uh, talking at the Project, or sorry, the Committee on the Present Danger China, is talking at one of their panels, and his speech was all about the danger of an EMP attack, and you know a couple of years ago he was the one talking about how North Korea could just nuke our upper atmosphere or our atmosphere to cause an EMP effect. They wouldn't have to target anything down here. Um, but now he's just saying that China could do that to us. So, like, China wouldn't have to, like, necessarily target us. They'll just blow a nuke up in our atmosphere so that, you know, all of our electronic devices will stop working. Well, actually, last year, um, before any of this coronavirus stuff um, was really on the scene, there was all the seeding of these narratives. I talk about it in my series on, on cyber reason in the 2020 election I wrote, wrote back, back in January. And they were basically planning out this narrative, these top intelligence officials and a lot of um, mainstream media outlets that were saying that our critical infrastructure is going to be hacked by a rival state. Um, or could be targeted by like an EMP or something like that. And this was like back at the end of last year when they were also saying there was going to be no election in 2020, which is now increasingly looking like it's the case, huh? So pretty crazy how they seem to yeah. predict so much of this stuff well in advance, huh? Uh, and with that being said, um, 
So now I think it's a good time to get into this uh, this article that we're talking about today, All Roads Lead to Dark Winter, um, since we're talking about how a lot of these narratives and a lot of things seem to be going on behind the scenes last year that were strangely predictive and a lot of things that are happening today, right? So um, as I note in the subtitle of this article, the leaders of two controversial pandemic simulations that took place just months before the current coronavirus crisis, Event 201 in Crimson Contagion, share a common history. The 2001 biowarfare simulation Dark Winter. Dark Winter not only predicted the 2001 anthrax attacks, but some of its participants had clear foreknowledge of those attacks. So um, any discussion of Dark Winter, obviously we have to start off with what was Dark Winter and why it's important. So really quick, um, I guess a brief summary of the exercise. It was a biowarfare simulation conducted at the end of June 2001 uh, at Andrews Air Force Base in Maryland. It was attended by a whole list of people. I don't really go over all of them, but I think some of them um, deserve some attention because I didn't really, um, I sort of saved some of them for future series. But a lot of the key ones I point out are people like Jerome Hauer, who played the director of FEMA, and who we've already talked about a little bit, James Wolsey, the former CIA director, he played the director of Central Intelligence at Dark Winter. There's a couple um, other people that I think are interesting, one of them being Judith Miller. Uh, Robbie, you mentioned her just a little bit ago. She was at the New York Times, was really um, key in manufacturing consent for the Iraq war, drumming up the lies about the weapons of mass destruction in Iraq, and uh, drumming up fear of an anthrop attack before the anthrax attack actually happened right so um some of the other people i just want to touch on really quick is the guy who played president in this exercise is a former senator named sam nunn uh at the time this was going on sam nunn had co-founded the nuclear threat initiative with a cnn billionaire ted turner and right after the 9 uh the 9 11 and anthrax attacks um, the Nuclear Threat Initiative started uh, to fund to the tune of hundreds of millions of dollars biodefense programs uh, throughout the United States. So that's interesting. And another person who I'd like to point out is Margaret Hamburg, who played the secretary of HHS. She went on uh, after this exercise to join the Nuclear Threat Initiative. She then became um, head of the FDA under Obama. And now she is a top advisor, top science advisor to the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. And there's a few other people that are worth pointing out. Uh, there was a former uh, FBI director, uh, William Sessions, who I actually believe he was FBI director at the time of Waco um, and, and things like that, which is pretty nuts. And then... Um, uh, Frank Keating, who was governor of Oklahoma, uh, he became governor pretty much just as the Oklahoma City bombings happened. Another odd um, tie in there. And um, another person I'd like to point out is this NBC News journalist whose last name I am probably going to totally butcher. Uh, so sorry about that in advance. But um, Jim Miklazewski. I think is his last name. Anyway, he was... I butchered his last name, too, when I started <laughs> to talk about him. It's okay. <laughs> All right. So we're in the same boat. I feel a little better. But anyway, this guy was a correspondent for NBC News that was in attendance at Dark Winter, and he was, I think, the first reporter on the scene uh, at the Pentagon on 9-11 right after the impact. So that is another interesting... A coincidence. And of course, um, I have to mention Frank Wisner, who is the son of one of the co-founders of the CIA and was a career State Department official and was very involved in Arab Spring stuff in the Obama era. And um, anyone else uh, I'm leaving out, Robbie? Mm, no, it'd be interesting, though, to find out what what the reason is that those reporters got involved and who those other reporters were. 
So I think there was two more, but I can't recall their names off the top of my head. But Mary Walsh of CBS, and then there was a freelancer guy, Lester yeah. Rheingold, but I, I wasn't really familiar with their work. I looked at them really quick and didn't, didn't find much. There Same, was also yeah. someone from the BBC um, as well, okay. I believe. But yeah, interesting that they had four different journalists uh, participate there um, in, in this exercise. A little unusual. Oh, another person worth mentioning, well, the they- guy that was National Security Advisor David Gergen, um, who has been a, a big advisor to numerous administrations, Republican and Democrat, one of these bipartisan, quote unquote, mm-hmm. swamp creatures, however you want to talk about yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. So what a cast of characters, huh? Yeah. And also, um, none of these people, you know, if you go and look up the the um, only available film of this uh, exercise that Whitney's talking about, you all you'll be able to see are just actors reading from scripts, pretending to be newscasters. None of these people we're talking about are in any of these film segments. So they participated in like a live exercise while watching a filmed fake news broadcast with other people. So there's a whole other cast of characters that were just actual actors <laughs> that were hired to participate in it. Well, not um, all of them were not all of them were actors actually. The guy I just mentioned a second ago, Robert Cadlick, who's now in charge of HHS's uh, coronavirus. Oh, he's the response. one who has a line in it. Yeah, you're the, right. Yeah, he appears in the second news clip, and the name Dark Winter <laughs> derives from the quote that he's making. This is the Chinese corn terrorist, pork terrorist guy. Yeah, so he he's that's so crazy. Yeah, so he's introduced in that as like a bio warfare expert in one of the news clips, and says that oh, there's not enough vaccines for smallpox to go around, so it's going to be a dark winter for America, or something like that. Pretty crazy, because right after this happened, uh, well, uh, just a few months after this exercise, and immediately after 9/11, Robert Cadlick becomes the bio defense advisor to George W. Bush. And is basically the architect of Bush era biodefense policy following the anthrax attack. So interesting to see him there. He's worth pointing out. Yeah, the exercise itself definitely shaped a lot of how the Bush administration thought about the war on terror and the world after 9-11 in ways that I don't think the public generally understands. I, I don't think people who haven't looked into this deeply, like you have, understand how much that this exercise shaped everything. You know, the exercise plus the anthrax attacks. I mean, there's so much of the Bush policy that revolved around this fantasy scenario of a bioterror attack and a bioterror pandemic um, that it's really interesting to look back on, I think. And we need to understand that this is how much yeah. they've, been, they've been fantasizing about a global pandemic for decades. Our, our policy basically. is literally driven by the delusions of, of professional psychopaths <laughs> that like make up yeah. fantasy yep. games and they play them out and and they're still not prepared. Yeah. <laughs> like, like, and they're still not even prepared for a pandemic that just requires like PPE and like masks. <laughs> so, like, just in that regard, you know, yeah. they couldn't even get the right amount of masks for the United States. Well, so, I'll, I get into whatever. that in part two a little bit. A big part of that is because a lot of the biodefense resources were put in things like BioShield, which essentially poured all of the money earmarked for biodefense into purchasing and stockpiling vaccines in case there would be a smallpox attack or another anthrax attack um, or or disasters like this. And then they didn't put any money into masks or any of this other protective equipment. 
right? So we can thank all the fear mongers at Dark Winter for a lot of the things going on now. And it's also worth pointing out too, that in, in the Dark Winter exercise, not only were there a lot of parallels with what happened in 2001 with the War on Terror, but there's also a lot of creepy parallels to things that were brought up at Event 201, the simulation last year. And um, yeah. And some things that are going on right now, and we can get into that in a second. But really quick, now that we've outlined uh, the players and, and some background here, it's worth pointing out, too, that, you know, Robert Cadlick, right, was this this individual that was involved in, in these fictional news clips. But this whole exercise was created and, and drafted by mainly by, I think it's three groups. One of them, and, and the most important one, I would argue, would be Johns Hopkins Center for Civilian Biodefense Strategies, which is part of the Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security. And, of course, the Center for Health Security... Um, was one of the main sponsors of Event 201 last year, right? And in this other group, the Center for Civilian Biodefense Strategies, is a part of that health center. And at the time, it was led um, by Tara O'Toole with her, you know, uh, partner in crime, I guess you could say, Thomas Inglesby, who leads that center now and was the moderator at Event 201. But beyond the, the John Hopkins involvement, there was also uh, the Center for Strategic and International Studies, which is a think tank that I'm pretty sure is still around. And then the other one um, was the Analytic Services Institute for Homeland Security. And then uh, the Oklahoma National Memorial Institute for the Prevention of Terrorism. Right. So um, those were the main players involved in drafting the script. But it seems like um, Tara O'Toole and Thomas Inglesby of this John Hopkins Center and um, the guys, two guys at this Analy Analytics uh, Services Institute for Homeland Security, uh, Randy Larson and uh, Mike Demir. Uh, were the main authors of this because they ended up briefing uh, Dick Cheney on um, Dark Winter not long after the exercises happened. And Randy Larson, by the way, is a close and longtime friend of Robert Cadillac. They co-authored tons of stuff together in the 90s. So they're both um, delusional, crazy people, <laughs> um, for lack of a better way to phrase it. So um, I think that's enough background for now. So now um, I guess we can dig into the, you know, the, the narrative that was sort of put forth in this exercise if... Um, you know, that sounds okay with you. Yeah, yeah, let's do it. All right, so I mentioned earlier how in the beginning of the exercise, they sort of laid out all these things that were going on in the world geopolitically, like this whole thing about the, the China pork terrorism. Okay, so things that were going on besides that were claims that Al-Qaeda was seeking to purchase uh, biological weapons from the former Soviet Union and that Saddam Hussein had hired uh, former uh, bioweapon researchers from the former Soviet Union and was in, uh, planning to create biological weapons, which is interesting because this was something that was fear-mongered about since the Gulf War in the early 90s that Saddam Hussein had done this with Soviet defectors, right? So it, it didn't turn out to yeah. happen, and actually the only bio biological weapons Saddam Hussein ever had were given to him by the U.S. during the Iran-Iraq War. Funny that. So... Um, Moving on, so they're setting up this narrative really early about Al-Qaeda and, and Saddam Hussein trying to get their hands on biological weapons. Okay, um, But another, th another thing that's really interesting, given with, um, the war in Iraq and all of this, is that there was a planned deployment of U.S. soldiers to the Middle East in this exercise to counter the Iraqi military, which the U.S. said uh, was planning to potentially invade Kuwait, right? like a Gulf War repeat scenario, basically. And it notes that a majority of uh -huh. Americans were opposed to that uh, that deployment. 
right? And then, of course, later on in the exercise, once this biowarfare attack happens and Iraq seems to be the likely culprit, you see most of those Americans that were once opposed to this troop deployment begin begging for it, saying the U.S. needs to exact revenge. Pretty interesting, huh? Considering the manufacture for consent for the Iraq war and all that stuff that followed the events of 9-11 and the anthrax attacks. Well, you can't, I mean, it needs to be emphasized even more that how eerily similar this was. You know, because it's a smallpox pandemic that happens in the exercise, maybe at first glance it doesn't seem like it's that similar. But once you lay out all these details and look into them, you realize that it's so bizarre how much of it lines up with the future. I mean, even down to this imaginary Middle East excursion, you know, that U.S. troops are going to invade Iraq again. I mean, the whole thing is absolutely bizarre. Um, yeah. And then it June ends, 2001, I mean, I guys. Ahead. <laughs> yeah. And how, you know, that's only, let's see, June, July, August. That's only three months before 9-11, essentially. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's just, it's, it's crazy. So everything we've laid out thus far is just the background and just the people involved in all that, right? So amid this backdrop about this, this troop deployment, evil Saddam Hussein is working with the Soviet Union and Al Qaeda too, and China pork terrorism and all this stuff. Okay. So amid this backdrop, suddenly there are reports that come out first from, uh, of Oklahoma saying that there's a smallpox outbreak. And of course, smallpox uh, at this point has been eradicated. So people immediately assume that it must have been deliberately introduced and that it's a bioterrorist attack. And they immediately make the assumption, these players in the exercise, that the attack is related to the troop deployment decision, the decision to deploy troops to the Middle East, suggesting that the culprit is someone in the Middle East right away, right? So, um, yeah. What's interesting is that even though smallpox is not like anthrax, obviously, um, a lot of things that came up with the smallpox crisis as it unfolded um, during the dark winter exercises, stuff that is actually more similar to coronavirus today, things like um, there's no way to rapidly diagnose smallpox, there's no existing treatments available, no surge capacity in the healthcare system, there's not enough protective gear for hospitals, hospitals are facing desperate situation, situations, people are dying in hallways, right? And you also mentioned that in the exercise, they talk about this possibly being revenge for troops being deployed to the Middle East. That yeah. sounds like they're basically referring to bin Laden's declaration about bringing American troops to the Arabian Peninsula. Yep. Sounds like they're like referencing that, which had already happened at that point. Right. His declaration. Yep. So interesting, interesting stuff to point out. But it is it is just really crazy how much in this exercise they were driving home. It's Iraq, it's Al Qaeda, because even in these fictional news clips, right, that you can still see um, from these exercises. And one of them, the reporter says, Iraq must have provided or not might or she says might sorry Iraq might have provided the technology behind the attacks to terrorist groups in Afghanistan so she's so there they're already linking Iraq to Al-Qaeda in Afghanistan even though those ties were known not to exist at the time and even after 9-11 there was no evidence of them working together right so I mean this is just the same fictitious fantasy narrative that these people have been were running with well before 9-11 and the anthrax attacks and they're just there, you know, putting it out there and, and seeding a narrative months before. It's just, um, 
just yeah crazy the narrative that we you know we got later from a lot of these neocons even before the anthrax attacks because there was a little time you know about a month in between where 9-11 happened and the anthrax attacks where they were trying to say that the al-qaeda hijackers had met with iraqi government officials like that was the remember that in narrative Prague. was very strong yeah yeah that was so they, so they were already promoted. trying to tie yeah. so the idea that this even appeared in this exercise at all that it was like Afghani terrorists, you know, like basically implying Al Qaeda, maybe by not but not directly saying the exercise being directed or puppeted by like the Iraqi government, is just it's just very bizarre. Again, that that was the narrative that you know these neocons were really fixated on after nine eleven, and that now they pretend like they never said that. You know, oh no, we never oh, said man. that. Yeah, uh, Iraq was involved in nine eleven. No, you absolutely did. Actually, I have a book I'm looking at right now, written by Stephen Hayes called The Connection, showing a picture of oh, Bin Laden man. with like an arrow going to Saddam's face. So you're going to actually tell me that that oh, wasn't like your gosh. main talking point after 9-11? Well, like James Woolsey, anyway. who was at Dark Winter, right? He was the guy who swore under oath that Saddam Hussein was part of 9-11. And he's the guy that Paul Wolfowitz had sent to what London to fear him up evidence that this Prague meeting actually happened, right? So... And that the anthrax attacks were the work of Saddam. That was his other assignment. His other duty, which, yeah. Which it seems honestly like he wasn't investigating anything. He was literally just being a paid or hired propagandist to go out there and drum up, you know, maybe similar to what Rudy Giuliani's doing for Trump or, or whatever now, like just finding weird shit to, you know, to, to use to bolster this case that they're trying to make. Wolsey so, literally so. lied under oath saying this stuff too. I don't know if if Giuliani's gone quite that far yet, but I mean he's done enough stuff. So. No. <laughs> well, no. I mean G Woolsey is definitely way deeper. I mean he's a CIA director. I'm sure <laughs> right. he's way dirtier. Yeah, totally. So, um, anyway, going back to how they were seeding this this narrative about um, Iraq and Saddam Hussein, I thought it was kind of interesting. Some of the um, quote-unquote intelligence they provide that throughout the exercise before it reaches its conclusion um, that, you know, piece by piece has all these different pieces that intermittently pop up suggesting uh, nefarious Saddam Hussein involvement in the smallpox attack. And one of these is really interesting because it reminds me a lot of what... Um, We've been shown by people like Netanyahu and, and some of the Iran hawks in the Trump administration about Iran's um, alleged nuclear weapons program. It's these, you know, shady, like uh, grainy satellite imaging photos, because we know that the, sat the spy satellites of the U.S. can like, you know, if you walk outside and you look at the time on like a wristwatch, they can like zoom in and like see that all in like super HD detail, you know, now. But we get these grainy satellite photos still today, like showing stuff anyway. Um, in the dark winter exercise, they use these like these grainy satellite photos of a building that they call a suspected bio research facility. Oh, dude! <laughs> right, and there's no proof. It's of exactly it. like the. It's exactly like the Colin Powell satellite photos at the UN. It can't. Right. It can't, just can't get more ridiculous than this. How similar this was to what actually unfolded. Right. A year and a half later. So, exactly. So, it, not only do they say suspected bioresearch facility, by the way, bioresearch, not bioweapons, bioresearch, you know, it's not necessarily nefarious for a country to have a bioresearch facility. 
Anyway, um, in this in this exercise, they say the suspected facility appeared to be expanding a quote unquote exclusionary zone, uh, meaning to keep civilians away from the building. And they claimed that there was also a quote unquote possible quarantine in the same uh, town. This this facility was nearby, right? So they're sort of like, oh, there's weird stuff going on at this bio research facility in in Iraq, right? Well, that's interesting too, Whitney. Just really quickly on that, it sounds like from this exercise, and I and I remember reading that as well, that it sounds like they're sort of ba- doing that balancing act of the either-or narrative that maybe it was an accidental release and there's a quarantine around this Iraqi lab because it got accidentally got out. I mean, it, it almost seems like that could be part of the implication there. And, that, and you see the neocons doing that now with China and COVID-19 is they're like, well, you know, this is a bioweapon or, you know, maybe they accidentally released it because they were researching it. You know, either or either way, they're responsible. Right. I don't know. Well, I, I get that hints of that from what you just read. Totally. Well, it sort of suggests this facility had a dangerous leak or something, right? Yeah. So, exactly. So interesting to see that narrative here in here in Dark Winter. Um, but another thing that came out as soon as the satellite imaging thing was revealed in this exercise, right, is that Iraq was one of three countries, including Iran and North Korea, who were, quote unquote, repeatedly rumored to have uh, uh, obtained uh, Soviet Union smallpox cultures from defecting scientists. Interesting. Wow. Yeah, well, the Soviet defectors bit, I get into a little bit in in part two, because there were all these Soviet defectors that went to Western countries like the UK and the US, and the ones that were most successful, and that made a ton of money and basically ensured their continued presence in, in US national security circles, were the ones that told the wildest stories about the Soviet Union uh, bioweapons program, right? And one of these guys who in the US who's this guy named, uh, he changed his name, now he's known in the U.S. as Ken Alabek, and he ended up founding these biotech companies, and he's still pretty prominent in the U.S. Anyway, he invented all these stories that later turned out to be completely made up, a lot of them, about the the bioweapons program at the for- of the former Soviet Union. He was saying stuff. Um, he, would, he would tell one story one, uh, one way the first time, and then like add a bunch more details that didn't fit with the first account into the second account, and so on, you know, like a pathological liar basically but i mean fear sells right and so he was one of these crazy uh doomsayer guys weaving these crazy you know fantasies and then these people in the u.s like cadlick and tara o'toole is another one of these people that fantasizes about this stuff all day long uh they just ended up running with this stuff and they're like oh someone from russia says that it must be true you know so it's really crazy that these guys are playing such a prominent role in the justification for, you know, oh, these people must have, you know, biological weapons programs because apparently some of these Soviet defectors said that and they ended up, you know, it ended up not being true because Iraq didn't have them, you know? So it's just, it's wild, dude. Well, it's it's also interesting because on some level, they're including that these more sophisticated nation states like Russia and China might have some kind of role to play because... You know, you're dealing with viruses like smallpox versus, you know, things that were traditionally used in bio warfare. If you want to just talk about the way bio warfare has previously been done, it was stuff like anthrax and the bubonic plague, which are bacteria, you know. So 
those things, you know, you could maybe make the sell easier by just being like, yeah, Iraq was making anthrax. But to say like Iraq was making smallpox um, by themselves, it almost wouldn't be able to be sellable as a narrative. So it, cause it's a virus. So I feel like that's why they're, you know, they're playing around with all these narratives about Soviet Union defectors and and China. So that's just something else that comes to mind when I think about all this. Actually, another exercise that followed Dark Winter it was in 2005 called Atlantic Storm. It had the same John Hopkins Center uh, create it. Uh, they put out a narrative sort of like that about how um, biowarfare has become... Uh, um, what's the, they say? They talk about the democratization of bio warfare, meaning it's not just state actors anymore. Anyone can do it. Anyone with a thousand dollars can make bio weapons. Is basically what they they seed and the, the narrative they seed there. And they say this, you know, little terrorist group that's based out of this country in Central Asia or something gets their hands on smallpox from the former Soviet Union and spreads it all over Europe or something. And it was it was like dark winter, but it wasn't just the U.S. government. It was like the U.S. government, the U.K., France, Germany, right? Um, and at the end of the exercise, they say, "Hey, you know what? We kind of need more global government." Weird. Um, <laughs> um, so anyway, uh, getting back to dark winter. So uh, we're talking about how they, you know, are seeding this narrative all throughout the exercise, and then at the end, this prominent Iraqi defector appears, and he says. You're right. Iraq did it. And they did it through intermediaries, which is obviously deemed to be these Afghanistan terrorist groups based on what they said earlier on in the exercise. But they also note that while this claim from the defector is, they say it's highly credible, they also say there is no forensic evidence to support this claim. Interesting. What the hell? Wow, that's really fascinating. It's almost like the Bentonite thing from yeah. the actual anthrax attacks how abc's brian ross and like a few other people got some weird aggressive leak from inside the bush administration demanding that th it had like hallmarks of saddam's weapons program because there was bentonite in it right that's that's really interesting too how this is so weird how many of these little tiny details line up you know with the simulation versus reality i mean it's it's I, again I, I just it's just baffling oh man yeah well actually it's not just the the bentonite claim pretty much the entire push for the iraq war was based on zero forensic evidence and was based on all these quote unquote highly credible intelligence claims that later turned about to be turned out to be totally made up i mean even the cia director at the time george Tenet, was like yeah we inserted a bunch of bs in the intelligence you know whatever <laughs> so i yeah. mean just really crazy especially when you consider that these guys made up this crazy fantasy in june 2001 and there were so many similarities that went happen and ended up resulting in an actual war that killed millions of people and there's still babies being born in fallujah iraq with horrible birth defects because of like the chemical weapons we use there right so it's not i mean on one hand you know it, it almost seems kind of funny like how ridiculous and transparent these these guys are when they like game the stuff out and like how delusional they are but at the same time you know they have destroyed tons of lives uh, not just in iraq too a lot of the people that served in iraq you know uh came back um or uh, you know with major problems or disabled for life a lot of them too or they ended up dying over there all based on this you know delusional fantasy world lie that was based on no forensic evidence and these quote-unquote highly credible intelligence claims that were actually complete bs so uh it's important to keep that in mind too even if we're lampooning these guys a little bit remember they're all they all have blood on their hands so yeah as crazy as 
it sounds that they were theorizing this kind of scenario in a way the actual dark winter scenario um what the propaganda line was in it seems more kind of almost like more credible and more put together than what the Bush administration actually tried to sell when it eventually came to selling the Iraq war. I mean, the aluminum tubes, nuclear weapons narrative that they tried to put out there, I was just really sloppy. Um, And uh, so I don't know. I just, it's just strange that, you know, at least this involves the idea that a nation state was, uh, was somehow behind it all. Um, you know, or like, like defectors from the Soviet Union were. Well, I think part of the reason for that is let's remember too that it wasn't the same people that wrote Dark Winter that ended up writing that narrative later on for the Bush administration necessarily. But, um, you know, Dick Cheney was personally briefed by the authors of Dark Winter on the exercise. He watched a whole videotape of the live exercise and the news clips and all of it, right? So it's very possible that they liked the narratives they saw there and decided to implement them, uh, but didn't do it in a way as sophisticated as these, as these professional, you know, biodefense doomsday yes. academics, right? They just sort of did it the Dick Cheney way, I guess. <laughs> that's a great point. No, that's a great point. I didn't even think about that. I, I mean, I know that Dick Cheney requested or that he was shown the videotapes of it, but I didn't even think that, that it might've had an influence on the way that they cherry picked. Oh yeah. Propaganda. He was perfect after That's... he saw the video. So Scooter Libby, his chief of staff, um, showed him the video. Scooter Libby, by the way, was super close to Judith Miller, who was at this exercise, right? But Scooter Libby wasn't there. Yes. But anyway, he shows him this, um, he, he makes Dick Cheney sit down and watch the whole video one afternoon. Right. And then the next day, Dick Cheney demands to have like these, uh, the, the people that made it come in and brief him. Right. And so Tara O'Toole is there. Thomas Inglesby is there, by the way, Tara O'Toole now works for NQTEL, the CIA, basically. Um, Thomas Inglesby, right, is the leader of this John Hopkins Center, was at Event 201, and so he's here at this briefing. And then this other guy that co-wrote um, this series, or, or this exercise with, with these guys, Randall Larson, also came, right? And he's close with Cadillac, I mentioned that earlier. And what's crazy is that Randall Larson claims that he snuck in um, botulin toxin, which is sort of like anthrax, like a <laughs> vial of it, into the vice president's office. And Dick Cheney's like, well, I'm really impressed to hear what you have to say about Dark Winter, but what what are we looking for in a biological weapon? And according to Larson, he pulls out this vial and he's like, it looks like this, Mr. Vice President. Right. And it like reinvents this whole dramatic, (laughs) dramatic like scenario or whatever. But maybe if it happened like that, I mean, maybe Dick Cheney was just like, well, this is probably catnip to that guy, man. I mean, Dick Cheney is just such a crazy dude. He was probably just like, Oh my gosh, this is like a movie. And was probably just, there's that whole other weird story too that came out in Jane Mayer's book. And I don't know if I fully believe it, but apparently some, they had some kind of alarm set up in the white house that would detect anthrax. Oh yeah. It's the basis. System. And apparently it went, yeah. we'll get into that here in a second. Yeah. And it went off. Yeah. So it went off and Cheney, I mean, do you mind if I just say the sure, story sure. really yeah. quick about Cheney? Go ahead. That, that Cheney thought that he was directly being, targeted for assassination by some kind of bioterror attack in the White House. And that was apparently part of his big reason why he went off to that bunker, that mysterious location, um, that old school Cold War bunker that they depict in the movie. um, What's it called? What the Christian Bale, Dick Cheney movie. But they don't explain in the movie why exactly he did it. But that was why. They also don't explain Um, the basis program. I'll be getting to that in a little bit. But it's important to point out... um, 
Oh, I'm going to be getting ahead of myself. But anyway, so at the same, tar same time Dark Winter was going on, this basis system that, that was supposed to detect biological weapons and their presence, um, you know, in certain areas, um, it was being developed by a couple U.S. national uh, laboratories, and one of them, the Livermore National Laboratory, by the way, that I think that at the time it was managed by Battelle, that national laboratory. Anyway, um, they, they said um, they marketed basis. They, they were testing it out while Dark, Dark Winter was going on. But then they said um, it had uh, a notorious tendency for false positives and that it actually ended up inducing the panic it was designed to prevent. That's a direct quote from that laboratory, right? And so even though it has this huge fail rate of false positives, they install it at the White House. And then after it, it does all these false positives at the White House, Bush says, you know what? This is great. Let's install it in 30 cities around the country. What? Oh, fuck. <laughs> I mean. Well, I wonder if this thing still exists around the country. Like, where? I wonder where they have it. It's not the same anymore. They have a new system, but it's 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 similar um, in a lot of ways. I'll be How getting into that odd. later on. But isn't that nuts? I mean, a lot of people like to write off like the stuff like this that that the bush administration did is just like bumbling incompetence but honestly um it looks a lot more than that it looks like something else at this point especially knowing what happened afterwards and all the panic this caused and how it was really convenient for a lot of long-standing agendas of this whole crowd that was in power at the time right it's just um eh, a little disconcerting um, but anyway, let's get yeah. into um, another aspect that I, I want to um, that's really important to bring up about Dark Winter in relation to the anthrax attacks, which is um, how in Dark Winter at the end of this exercise. So, yeah, like essentially Iraq is to blame based on the narrative they've set up throughout this exercise. Right. Um, but there's a couple other things that also happen at the end of the exercise. One of them being the, that the New York Times, where Judith Miller works, right? And she's at Dark Winter. She's right there pretending to be a reporter at the New York Times, just like she is in real life. Um, they get anonymous letters that threatened uh, attacks on the U.S., including anthrax attacks, and said that these attacks would happen if the U.S. didn't withdraw its troops from the Middle East, right? And these letters, according to the exercise, contain a, quote, genetic fingerprint of the smallpox strain matching the fingerprint of the strain causing the current epidemic that's explored in the exercise. Isn't that nuts? That's odd. Like, like, like as if the terrorists somehow put a, a, a marker of the fact that they were the behind the smallpox strain on the letter. Yeah, like we're the same people behind That's, the smallpox attack and we're going to use an anthrax attack dude, next. Dude, it's so weird because, well, first of all, in the anthrax, like if you've already done a smallpox outbreak and it's causing like a pandemic, like it's already going to kill something like 30% of the people that it infects. So why would you even need to do an anthrax attack after that? <laughs> like, it's so... But I honestly think it has... <laughs> Well, sorry, go ahead. No, I was going to say, but it is interesting, <laughs> though, that it's like, that don't talk about the letter itself having anthrax in it, like as what actually happened later. But the fact that they're talking about a genetic fingerprint of the smallpox virus, like on the letter is fascinating because that's sort of like anthrax being in the letter later on that really happened in real life. It's oddly similar, right? So that's mm -hmm. why I thought that that particular part about the letters is worth pointing out, right? It's just... um. Another um, odd, odd thing there in Dark Winter, right? So um, a, a couple other things I want to touch on really quick um, that are in Dark Winter that are relevant today 
um, in, in the light of, you know, the coronavirus response and all that stuff, Dark Winter talks about, um, I'm just going to go over this part really quickly. They talk about dangerous misinformation spreading online, people selling unverified cures, uh, perhaps like Alex Jones and coronavirus right now, right? Uh, and um, he, it also goes after, it talks about websites that are making unverified claims about, um, including elites keeping the good vaccine for themselves and giving a bad vaccine to the masses, right? And and, and those are some of the misinformation examples in uh, given in Dark Winter, which is kind of crazy. But in Event 201, um, which was, you know, Thomas Inglesby is the, the, the link really in the John Hopkins Center um, between, you know, Event 201 and Dark Winter, right? Um, they also talked about a lot about this um, misinformation, disinformation concern. But of course, updated for the modern era, they talk about uh, social media censorship, limited internet shutdowns. They also have this interesting strategy about, um, I, I think they refer to it as like the flood, right? Just like flooding so much information out there that people are overwhelmed with in information and they, they, they turn to like more like authoritative mainstream sources. Yeah, I mean, it's very predictive of, of what we're facing now. I mean, after Russiagate, we've seen this influx of all these different versions of policing media and fake news and disinformation um and in a time of crisis like this uh we're gonna see it clamp down even harder i mean what didn't that david ike video which i'm not not a fan of david ike at all but uh apparently some video of him linking 5g to covid19 which again i think is a ridiculous theory uh caused a bunch of other people's channels to be demonetized all at once on youtube um Apparently, it triggered a wave of demonetizations because it was spreading disinformation, you know, about COVID-19. I think they were going to do yeah, that anyway. Uh, I think regardless of the David Icke sure. video or the fact it went viral, I mean, they were just looking for any reason for sure. to start that clampdown. I think we're only really seeing of the course. beginning of it, honestly. Um, but but really quick to wrap up Dark Winter and get into the anthrax attacks. So um, really quick, some other things they talked about in Dark Winter, uh, declaring martial law, invoking the Insurrection Act. Um uh, suspending habeas corpus, which, you know, is indefinite detentions. Bill Barr just asked for that, I think like a month ago, uh, saying that the Department of Justice needs to be able to indefinitely detain people because of coronavirus. Um, it also yeah. talks about uh, military trials in case the court system becomes dysfunctional. Interesting. And um, it also talks about how there were um, credible allegations of people that were deemed suspicious for smallpox or illegally detained um, by by police and the FBI, and that most of the people arrested were low-income individuals or ethnic minorities. Interesting. Weird. All right, so now that we've covered Dark Winter pretty extensively, I think it's time that we get into the anthrax attacks a little bit. So, right, so Dark Winter took place at the end of June 2001, and then we have 9-11 happen, and there's a period of interesting events that happen between 9-11 and when the anthrax attacks become known to the public and also known to the FBI, officially anyway. Um, and there's a couple things that go on there that also not just, you know, seem odd, but also directly involve Dark Winter participants doing some odd things. So uh, yeah. you, you want to start that off, Robbie? Sure. I mean, do you want me to go chronologically or should I just start mentioning different things? I mean, I can. Well, let's I start on 9-11, right? is... So on the day of 9-11, okay. 
Yeah, There's sure. a couple um, odd things that go on. So remember Jerome Howard, we talked about him uh, being at Dark Winter, right? He played the director of FEMA. He was previously the Office of Emergency yep. Management guy for New York City. He's the guy that had that office uh, put in World Trade Center Building 7. Uh, Jerome Howard was obsessed with building collapses and kept trophies of all the buildings that he helped collapse. And then Building 7 falls into its own fingerprint in our uh, footprint sorry in seven seconds right so anyway on the day of 9 11 yeah. jerome howard is working at crawl inc which was managing security for the world trade center um crawl inc has been described the cia of wall street i would honestly honestly sort of compare it more to like black q but instead of being like exclusively Mossad guys it's like cia and Mossad, right so it's it's just mm-hmm. like this private privatized extension of intelligence basically and they were actually accused of foreign intelligence agencies like the the french intelligence uh, apparatus of actually being a front for u.s intelligence and and working on behalf of the cia um not only were they doing uh, security at the world trade center they also did uh, counterintelligence investigations of saddam hussein very interesting. And they were also involved in the reorganization of Enron, which, you know, was a big scandal of the era. So definitely um, some interesting dudes there. So anyway, Jerome Howard, managing director of that, wasn't in his office on the morning of September 11th and went on the, um, you know, made uh, media appearances, I think, with Dan Rather right on 9-11, saying that buildings collapsed because of the high velocity of the planes and saying that Osama bin Laden must have been responsible. But Jerome Howard did more on 9-11, didn't he, Robbie? Well, I should just jump back really quick. I mean, the day, I don't know if you already mentioned this, but the day before 9-11, Jerome Howard and Rudy Giuliani, with the involvement of FEMA, uh, we're preparing to do a giant bioterror attack drill similar to Dark Winter called Tripod 2 that was to take place on 912 in Manhattan, downtown Manhattan. And uh, the FEMA people that were came for this drill that were already there stayed for 9-11 to help with the actual emergency effort. But because of this, you know, Jerome Howard was already doing a uh, an anthrax terror drill or he was already planning one. Apparently... Uh, he is the one who personally warns George W. Bush and Dick Cheney's staff to start taking Cipro on the evening of 9-11, uh, some kind of precaution, I guess, um, apparently because the next attack was going to be anthrax. How they knew this uh, since the anthrax attacks, the FBI says, was the work of one lone scientist, disgruntled scientist, it makes absolutely no sense. Um, but nevertheless, apparently... Uh, the Bush administration from that point forward were inoculated with Cipro. And the details, uh, fortunately, of that are, are pretty vague. We don't know how long they were on Cipro. We don't know if Jerome Hauer was on Cipro himself. We don't even know why Jerome Hauer decided to tell them to do that. Um, all we know is that they had planned to do a bioterror drill the day after 9-11. So um, I guess giving him the benefit of the doubt, you know, and assuming that he's a good guy and good faith. Maybe he just had anthrax on the brain, you know, and he thought that uh, the next attack was <laughs> definitely going to be anthrax. Right. Okay. Well, actually, it's interesting that uh, it wasn't just people in the Bush administration that got the Cipro tip. It later came out um, 
from a, a guy that a journalist that was then writing at the Washington Post, Richard Cohen. He had been told to take Cipro yeah. right after 9/11. Also, he got a tip, and he said in a roundabout way from a high government official. <laughs> so it's interesting that it spread outside of the Bush administration to some of these, you know, the the Beltway elite. I guess you could call them. Um, oh, it's time to take Cipro. Interesting, but of course, postal workers didn't get any sort of notice, did they? Just just these guys. No, they definitely, well, the privileged, uh, definitely, there was a strange thing, Whitney, because uh, I think Grant, Grandma Queen is actually who uh, led me in this direction. I didn't understand this, but apparently there was a run on Cipro, and there was a lot of leaks. Um, you know, it started with, you know, coming directly from government officials, but then it started to, like, leak among more privileged and, like, high-class, you know, elites around D.C. and in general, um, because uh, apparently th- there started to be such a run on Cipro that it was impossible to get at a certain point. This is even before the anthrax attacks even happened. I mean, that's what's so surreal about all this. Wow. Yeah. Um, that's wild. It kind of reminds me of how, um, you know, the insider trading with coronavirus, they were saying it was fine in public, these senators, and they were dumping stocks. And then there were all these CEOs that resigned in January when allegedly intelligence and, and military intelligence knew that this coronavirus thing was going to explode and be like, you know, cataclysmic, to use the word, uh, of these intelligence officials at the time, right? 220 CEOs in a single month resigned. In January, that is so I, I'm just surprised. The that highest amount on record. <laughs> yeah, by a big margin, I'm pretty sure. Yeah. And honestly, yeah. people that point that out and are like, "Hmm, that's odd," and "Hmm, this insider trading happened," you know, we're just all crazy conspiracy theorists to think that all these CEOs would like, you know, uh, all go off to these bunkers that someone, some people have been buying for the last few years, you know, underground and stuff. I, I don't know. This is just so. I feel like every day the the world just gets more surreal. <laughs> but anyway, um, it's kind it of does. an interesting tie-in yeah. that, you know, the Cipro stuff was going around sort of these elite circles. And then just like today, you know, these people in the elite seem to know that the hammer is going to drop before the rest of us find out, huh? Oh, yeah. I mean, it's... Uh, it, it, and also, you know, can cash in and, you know, make a ton of money off of it and get these powerful... Uh, positions, you know, as a result of these catastrophes. I mean, we're talking about Kroll Associates and Jerome Howard, and you're probably going to talk a little bit about how he benefited from this. But Paul Bremer, uh, the guy who was in charge of Kroll Associates at the time, went on to become the Iraqi occupation governor uh, as a result of the 9-11 attacks. Oh, my God. And he was actually also on TV on the day of 9-11, also conveniently not in his office, which was in the World Trade Center. Also saying Saddam Hussein or bin Laden was behind the attacks before there was any like evidence at all, you know, coming out. Right. So Paul Bremer and Jerome Howard, top Kroll guys, they didn't go to their offices at the World Trade Center on 9-11. But one Kroll Associates employee did, and that was John O'Neill, who had just started on September 10th and had been personally recruited to join Kroll by Jerome Howard. Interestingly enough, who was John O'Neill and why is this relevant? He was the government's top expert on Osama bin Laden. He ended up resigning the yeah. government because of allegedly his investigations into the bin Laden family and, um, you know, Saudi Arabia in general ended up being blocked by his superiors. And then he gets, you know, uh, brought into crawl by Jerome Howard and he but he doesn't get the tip to stay uh, to stay home, I guess, on 9-11 and ends up dying in the attack. And uh, conveniently, I guess, for the people 
that were putting out this narrative right away that it was Osama bin Laden because obviously the obstacle to that Osama bin Laden narrative would have been the top expert in the country saying that's not possible, right? Well, yeah, and it's also, it's really interesting, Whitney, if you want to get even more conspiratorial about John O'Neill, um, there's an, also an interesting event, which I think a lot of people gloss over, where his resignation wasn't just because, you know, he wasn't getting any traction on his bin Laden theories or his, his dedication to that. It was also because he was accused of losing a briefcase full of classified documents, which for someone as seasoned as he was in the FBI, it just seems very out of character for someone like that to lose a briefcase full of classified documents. And it was such mm. a shame on his record that he basically, like, that was a large part of why he resigned. Like, he was essentially pushed out. Um, so that, I mean, when I, when I read about that story, I'm like, did someone just, like, set him up and, like, steal his briefcase <laughs> so that he would resign hey, and, then event, and then get maybe, hired man. at Crow Associates? I mean... You, oh, you go man. in these weird places with it, but no, for sure. It's the whole thing. Kroll Associates has so many weird connections to 9-11, um, including the actual, you know, theories about how the buildings were potentially demolished that um, people should look into those connections. Kevin Ryan has actually written some great things about that. Well, okay. So since we're going kind of deep on this really quick before we move on. Uh, so Howard, uh, this is pretty relevant, I think. So Howard on 9-11, he was also a national security advisor to the Department of Health and Human Services. This becomes important with the anthrax attacks that happened later because he played a really key role in their response. Um, but he was also a vice president while he was at Kroll and all this stuff um, of the Scientific Applications International Corporation or SAIC. And he worked closely with Stephen Hatfield, who was an initially one of the people that was uh, blamed for the anthrax attacks. Um, but actually why he, he was working at this company, Hatfield was, and why um, Howard was also there um, this company, this corporation was developing protocols for how to handle anthrax letters and anthrax hoax letters, not just letters with anthrax, but fake anthrax huh. letters. Interesting. And Hatfield ended up actually developing a brochure for postal workers about how to handle anthrax and anthrax hoax letters. Interesting. This was all before 2001. So Jerome Howard and Hatfield working there at this company. By the way, SAIC is a major contractor. It was at the time to the intelligence community and the military. Yes. So uh, definitely worth pointing that out. So anyway, so that's basically what was going on at 9-11. A lot of good... Uh, you know, backstory there. But one thing that we should probably talk about now is that after 9-11 and before the anthrax attacks were known to have happened, um, at least publicly and officially, uh, there were a lot of people on mass media that were tied to PNAC, Project for a New American Century, and also this Dark Winter exercise that immediately started talking about um, the possibility of an anthrax attack, right? Yeah. And Iraq, too. I mean, you know, some of the same people or their associates were also pinning directly the 9-11 attacks themselves on Iraq. Um, yeah. Right, and Palestine. That was the Kagans. <laughs> yeah, yeah, which was also, you know, that was something that people, most people don't remember is there was actual video footage shown on 9-11 uh, right, geez, I want to say like around 11 a.m., uh, showing Palestinians allegedly celebrating the 9-11 attacks, which is not what the video is actually showing, but that was shown to like millions of people on the day of 9-11. 
um yeah and i think crazy. howard stern like went on that morning saying like we should bomb the crud out of them after that video came out oh I yeah we know. should That's we just... should shoot a nuke into palestine yeah we should nuke them we should we should nuke them all right ah these guys well anyway so we have people saying so like donald kagan is one of the first people i think um after 9 11 that went out and said you know we have to invade iraq we have to invade palestine right but then he also talked about there might have been anthrax on the world on the plane that hit allegedly hit the world trade well sorry the, the planes that hit the world trade center right so um that's interesting he's saying what would have happened he's like this only you know this attack only killed like that you know so and so many people like acting like it wasn't that big of a deal but then he's like what would have happened if those terrorists had had anthrax on that plane like sort of projecting that um you know the attack could have been much worse so we need to worry about you know what could come next which is basically an anthrax attack um his prediction is actually wasn't as I, I, not as specific and as disturbing. I don't I don't think as Richard Pearl's was, in terms of the anthrax attacks, because Richard Pearl just straight out on a TV program comes out and says, uh, "Yeah, I think the next attack's going to be uh, biological, uh, possibly like in, in our water supplies." <laughs> he just like straight up just like says that it's not going <laughs> to be that's like, oddly specific. Yeah, it's creepy, very creepy. I mean, when I found that, I was extremely creeped out he almost like giggles after he says this, the thing about anthrax it's a very creepy clip this is the kagan family are just like you know king creeps i feel <laughs> but anyway um so richard pearl uh, some people may not remember richard pearl very well or at least what his role was at the time right because he sort of faded from public view um in recent years maybe he's dead i don't even know um but anyway at the time he was a member of, of project for a new american <laughs> century right so he was one of those guys the pea knackers he was yeah uh, but he was also a, a, he a was big also, time yeah. advisor to the bush white house right so this guy was definitely very much part of the powers that be in the administration at the time yeah he sort of had a revolving door advisory role i think within the pentagon he wasn't he wasn't an official member but he was you know he was often helping the bush administration especially in their first term all right, so right after Richard Pearl makes that claim that you just gave an overview of, Jerome Howard comes out, I think that same week or maybe even that same day, and he also starts talking about how there's going to be biological uh, weapons, right? And he says that he doesn't just say that there's going to be, the next attack's going to be like biological weapons like Pearl did. He goes out and says, Osama bin Laden wants to get bioweapons, and he has links to Saddam, and Saddam's got him, right? Yeah. So, that's basically yep. play for play, dark winner right there. And there's Jerome Howard saying that right on it TV. Is. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, he was, he's probably put out some of the most specific insinuations that this was coming and already setting up the narrative that it was sort of a three way connection. Um, you know, Osama bin Laden, Iraq, you know, basically dovetailing back into that idea that somehow Iraq had something to do with 9 11. Right. But the people we're going over, by the way, these are just the guys that were saying this stuff on cable news. So from 9-11 until like October 3rd, um, this is according to Graham McQueen's book, The Anthrax Deception, by the way. The New York Times published 27 articles about the potential for anthrax to be used as a biological weapon. Remember that Judith Miller of the New York Times participated in Dark Winter, right? So it's very interesting that they decided to publish 27 articles in less than a month about anthrax attacks. Very suspect, I would say. <laughs> um, 
And also, oh, yeah. not long after this Hauer appearance, right, this is when we first start to see these, these ABC News, uh, I think was the one that first uh, reported on it about, you know, the uh, Muhammad Atta was going, uh, trying to get crop dusters and, and use it for anthrax. You want to talk a little bit about that, that theory? Oh, well, yeah. I mean, there was an actual, there's, there's actual several eyewitness reports and I, you know, I didn't believe them at first until I started digging into it, but there's, there are credible reports where Muhammad Atta was trying to get a crop duster. Um, and, and when he, I guess he actually tried to get a loan from the U S department of agriculture to get a crop duster. And in the process of trying to get it, he threatened to kill, uh, the person who was, I guess, in charge of giving out loans, um, at the office. So, it, that whole story is extremely bizarre, but it seems, you know, backed up by a lot of eyewitness accounts. But the Bush administration uh, initially tried to um, say that crop dusters were being, you know, they were the 9-11 hijackers were apparently trying to get crop dusters. So we're looking into like potential, you know, attacks that can be done with crop dusters. Um, meaning, you know, biological like attacks like anthrax. crop duster purchases or something or made it harder to get crop dusters for a period of time because of yeah, that Yeah, that's what something? Bush claimed. Yeah, that's what they said is that like the FBI like started making people do background checks like when they, you know, if you like you would be buying a gun if you're going to rent a crop duster. Um, but who knows if they yeah. actually implemented that or if it was just all them blowing smoke. It could have just been all for show. Right. Well, anyway, uh, going going back to this whole narrative, so there was this crop duster thing. There were all these people on cable news talking about anthrax attacks. The New York Times and other media outlets like ABC News uh, were talking about how, you know, anthrax being used all the time or uh, in, in stuff like that, right? But also on October 2nd, I think this was um, a couple days before um, the first anthrax victim ended up dying. Um, she released a book called yeah. Germs that you referenced a little bit earlier and um, that book basically frames um, the greatest bioterror threat that the U.S. Is, uh, US faces. It basically says that the, the greatest threat is Al-Qaeda teaming up with Iraq or Russia and stuff like that, uh, which is really um, yeah. interesting considering everything we're talking about. No, it's super weird. I mean, the fact that you would have this book come out, I think three days before Robert Stevens died from the, from the anthrax um is absolutely ridiculous i mean it, it just can't it, again it's just extremely extremely bizarre coincidence timing whatever you want to call it um and there was something else that she oh just back to the crop duster thing really quick i mean what's important about that is again that that all happened before any any known anthrax had gone out in the mail like the first anthrax victim to die happened like weeks after Bush was starting to talk about crop dusters and anthrax. There's speeches on record of the Bush administration talking repeatedly about anthrax, you know, before any known anthrax um, letters uh, had hit, uh, hit anybody or had been delivered to anybody yet. Um, so I don't know if we're making that clear enough to people, but yeah, that's why this stuff is so strange. Yeah, well, all the stuff taken together, I would definitely argue, and I do argue in my article, that there was someone had foreknowledge... <laughs> that, that these attacks were were coming and of course you know um part of the reason i base that uh part of my basis for for that claim has to do with what you know actually happened when the anthrax attacks took place and where the anthrax was uh originally uh where where it had ended up originating from which was a u.s military lab right so we'll get into that um a little more in a second 
Um, really quick though, before we get into the attacks themselves, and I'll, I'll let you um, go over, you know, the key points in there so we don't run on too long um, about the attacks themselves. Um, but on uh, before, you know, Bob Stevens, who was this uh, British-born photojournalist writing for uh, The Sun, which was sort of like a tabloid, I think, in, um, in, in Florida, um, a few days before that, and around, I think it was the same day that Judith Miller's book on germs came out, um, this doctor, this Egyptian doctor, uh, uh, researcher for the government, he was working at the EPA at the time, but he'd previously worked at the, the Fort Detrick uh, Biodefense Bioweapon Lab in, in Maryland, right? Mm -hmm. um, he was this Egyptian guy um, that had been harassed in the early 90s by a group of co-workers uh, co who called themselves, I think, the Camel Club. Um, anyway, they, they um, were very aggressive in their harassment of him for his, uh, his faith and also his ethnicity right so um anyway the fbi contacted this egyptian researcher because they'd gotten a, an anonymous letter from someone who claimed to have previously worked uh with this guy at fort dietrich and said that he was a biological terrorist who hated the u.s government and this is before any of the anthrax attacks were known to have happened so obviously whoever sent that uh, was definitely trying to set someone up for the blame and they were setting up this guy which i think is very um interesting because as i point out in my piece one of the guys that ended up having to leave the Fort Detrick lab for, for uh, harassing this Egyptian scientist um, was a guy named Philip Zack. And he was actually caught on camera soon after he had uh, left that lab, coming back um, and getting access, getting let in by a coworker friend that was still there and doing unauthorized anthrax research in like the middle of the night and on weekends and all these samples ended up going missing, including anthrax, um, a bunch of hantavirus, um, and in a bunch of other pathogens, including some that were labeled like Jeez. unknown, which apparently means experimental pathogens, right? And this Philip mm -hmm. Zack guy, he, instead of like getting court-martialed or anything or like being investigated, he goes straight, uh, straight off and ends up working for Eli Lilly, right? Which is where the current HHS secretary, he used to work for Eli Lilly um, as well. And anyway, Philip Zack was at Eli Lilly. He was collaborating with U.S. government researchers um, throughout the 90s. And then in the late 90s, he joins Gilead, which is a biotech company. And in 2001, this is according to Philip Zack's LinkedIn that he only made a couple years ago, I guess. He says he was handpicked in 2001 to lead a new project management department and uh, help oversee a complete restructure of Gilead's research and development. And at the time he was handpicked in 2001, the head of Gilead um, was just about to become Secretary of Fence for Bush, Donald Rumsfeld. Donald Rumsfeld joined Gilead's board in 1988 and became its chairman in 1997. And he stayed on until he became, um, you know, Secretary of Defense at the end of January 2001, right? So that's pretty interesting when you consider the military hands in all of this. Rumsfeld was at Gilead, then the Secretary of Defense. Donald Rumsfeld is a PNAC member, um, you know, Project for a New American Century, uh, very close to Cheney in terms of, you know, uh, uh, in, in the 80s, they were really in, instrumental, the two of them, in this very creepy shadow government continuity of government cog program and all this stuff. And Rumsfeld, of course, was the guy that on September 10th, 
announced that 2.3 trillion was missing from the Pentagon budget. And then the Pentagon's accounting office that was trying to find those trillions, bam, gets hit on 9-11 and is totally destroyed, right? So um, an interesting series of coincidences. And we'll get into this uh, when we talk about the investigation, but the FBI refused to find out who sent that letter uh, framing that Egyptian scientist. They said, we're not interested. So other than his own assertion in theory, because um, he's the one who revealed that it's probably Philip Zach who sent it, right? This, this Egyptian No, he scientist. didn't say that. I, um, this actually oh. came out from so reporting did, how... that was all done by the Hartford uh, Courant. They, they dug up an, an old army inquiry into the disappearance of all these anthrax samples. And they revealed that it was the same people, Philip Zach was part of the same group that had harassed the scientists. They did a lot of great reporting on this at the time. Yeah, so it comes from two separate reports okay. from, from there. And Assad didn't name any names. He just said, it's not me and the FBI believed him. But then when people found out about this letter, when people went and interviewed um, this Egyptian scientist from this newspaper, he mentioned the letter and then they went and they asked the FBI, are you going to follow this lead? And they said, no. Oh, weird. Yeah. Interesting. Definitely weird. <laughs> So anyway, the attacks themselves, um, if you wouldn't mind, you know, just going through the, the, the main points, because we're going a little long. <laughs> the first known anthrax victim, um, well, the first known death was on October 5th. It was of Bob Stevens, the photo editor um, for the National Enquirer in Florida. And uh, in the following couple of months, um, there were a total of five deaths. Um, including two U.S. postal workers, um, uh, I believe a 93-year-old woman in Connecticut, and a, um, a nurse a nurse assistant um, who worked in a hospital. And so th those people seem completely unrelated to each other. But there were four known letters uh, sent through the mail. Two of them were sent to sitting U.S. senators, um, Patrick Leahy and Tom Daschle. Uh, the other two letters were sent to media organizations. Um, one of them was sent to the New York Post, and the other one was sent to um, Tom Brokaw, NB NBC News. Now, each letter had some varying degree of anthrax in it. Um, some of them, specifically the letters that were sent to Daschle and Leahy, had what most people describe as fine grain, you know, weaponized anthrax, um, weaponized enough to actually go through the ventilation system in the Capitol building and infect people in the offices like next door and several doors down from Patrick Leahy and Tom Daschle where their mail was opened. Um, and there's an interesting coincidence, if you want to call it, um, between, you know, why was the letters, why were two letters containing weaponized anthrax sent to these two senators? Um, you know, why were they sent to Patrick Leahy and Daschle? Well, they were the only two senators who were trying to delay the Patriot Act. And they were trying to put some provisions on the Patriot Act because the Bush administration was so aggressively trying to fast track it through. Um, it wasn't even like they were like vocally railing against the Patriot Act. No, far from it, actually. If you watch their record, they're just like, yeah, we just want like some more time on this. It's like a really big bill. You know, 
we don't understand why the Bush administration is pushing so hard on this. But the fact that they were standing in the way at all is very interesting that they were the only two people targeted directly with these anthrax letters. And as a result of the fear of the the anthrax hysteria that it caused on the Capitol in the Capitol building, um, they had to shut it down. So the actual voting was done on the Patriot Act, like behind closed doors. And they were writing up parts of the bill, um, like, like using like uh, scissors and paper and stuff. There's all these like interviews you can read of people talking about what it was like to actually pass the Patriot Act. And it was done in a way that sounds like borderline illegal that they passed it, you know, when the, all the shit was all closed down um, because of this emergency situation. And one other person that doesn't get mentioned very much in here is Russ Feingold. He was actually one of the only senators who was vocally against the Patriot Act. And his staffers, several of them, got infected with anthrax through the ventilation system as well. Is that a coincidence? I don't know. Um, but that's also interesting. Um, so, and, uh, you know, Patrick Leahy to this day um, has actually said that he doesn't believe. Um, that the culprit that the FBI eventually pinned it on acted alone. And in fact, he thinks that the person, you know, there's still people out there who are guilty of murder um, who are responsible for it. Tom Daschle also seems extremely uncomfortable with the FBI's conclusions of the investigation. And when he's asked about it, um, he seems to also heavily doubt the official story. Um, But these other letters that went out, they ended up infecting... Um, something like, I think, 12 or up to 20 other people. There's varying degrees of infection. A lot of these people actually um, had to be hospitalized who survived. Um, but a lot of them simply tested positive for anthrax and were asymptomatic. And there were you know, dozens of those people. Um, so the total count of people who were asymptomatic, you know, going from asymptomatic to being having to be hospitalized for anthrax was something like, you know, uh, up to 40 or 50 people total. Um, but we don't really understand how different people got anthrax. Like how did uh, Dan Rather's office get anthrax in it? You know, he didn't work in the same office as Tom Brokaw. Um, how did a child of an ABC news reporter get anthrax? He didn't work in the same building as where the Tom Brokaw letter was sent. You know, so the FBI later just tried to explain all this by saying it all came from mail sorters. You know, these mail sorters that are using these postal hubs are what spread the anthrax around. But you still have to wonder, how did all these different people get it? How were they infected? Um, I don't think it's been fully explained just by the letters. In fact, the first victim, Robert Stevens, we don't even have the letter. The FBI doesn't know for sure exactly how he got infected. We're just going by some reports about him you know, putting his face up close to some weird uh, stalker letter to Jennifer Lopez that the National Enquirer received in the mail. But that um, is other such a that, crazy story, the J-Lo oh, letter. Uh, like it was like this pink powder or something some guy said. And it had, yeah, it's just um, a really wild um, account. Um, but I think some people have cast doubt on that. Another people, Another person got infected there too named Ernesto Blanco. And he doesn't know how he got infected either. He wasn't, he never handled that letter, you know? So if it was these mail sorters, you have to wonder why, you know, it just, it doesn't add up. And and that's one thing that I keep asking myself is why is the narrative that all the anthrax came from these letters when we can't really say that based on the, ev- the available evidence? I mean, 
it's just an too easy to explain narrative that, you know, these male sorters caused all these other people to get infected, including an 80 or a 93 year old woman in Connecticut. I mean, that's crazy. Well, a couple things I'd add to that would be um, some people got quote unquote anthrax letters, but the powder in the letters turned out to be totally harmless. And one of those people was Judith Miller, who we've talked about a little bit. Um, she ended up getting yep. one of these letters, but the powder in hers didn't it was entirely harmless. It was inert. So I guess whoever sent the, to Judith Miller just wanted to scare her a little bit. Didn't it, uh, want anything bad to happen to her, I guess. Kind of interesting. You'd go through all that trouble to write a letter and not actually, um, you know, put anthrax in it. I, I don't know. Just seems a little odd. No, it, it is odd. And it also is odd to me. And this is something that uh, someone has actually, you know, taken issue with. I think Marcy Wheeler, because she's actually really on the anthrax stuff back in the day. She took issue with this comment I made uh, several years ago, but I think it, stand, it stands true, is it's odd when you look at who got infected based on where the letters landed. Um, the New York Post actually got the least infections. So, you know, there's not that many people who got infected, but when you look at how little got infected there, it's kind of interesting to think, you know, even Glenn Greenwald, do you have a quote in your article where he's basically saying the neocons might have been behind these attacks? I'm paraphrasing him. How, but how so if they were... Changed? Well, let's let's just say if they were behind the attacks, what's one of the main news organizations besides Fox News that some of these neocons were working at that actually were involved in PNAC? The New York Post or the Wall Street Journal, maybe. So it kind of would make sense that if you're a neocon wanting to send out dangerous anthrax, that maybe you'll, you'll put the, le- the least dangerous form in the letter going to the New York Post. But I digress. <laughs> That's just my own personal theory. I don't have proof of that. Right. Well, it, it's worth adding to the discussion. If you look at pictures of the, the the anthrax that was sent to the New York Post, look at them yourself and tell me that that looks like the same fine-grained weaponized anthrax that were sent to other people. Just on I mean, a visual it like level, it looking? looks like yeah, it looks like fucking dirt in a little vial. It looks crazy. Like it's not like it's not meant to hurt anybody. The other anthrax apparently went into the air like smoke. I mean, like that's what real weaponized anthrax does. It's like magician smoke. You know, you rub it's like powdered sugar. You throw a little bit in the air and it and it goes into the air like a cloud of smoke. So um, that's how it got through the ventilation system when Leahy, you know, got the letter. But yeah, no. So it's interesting that this New York Post anthrax looks pretty low grade. <laughs> All right. So one one quick thing that we haven't mentioned yet that's really important for people to know in case they're not familiar with this is that the the what the letters themselves said is really important. They had. Um, they were like written in like serial killer block letters. Um, it, it had the date September 11th, 2001. It said death to America, death to Israel. Allah is great. So it was clearly an effort to um, claim by whoever sent the anthrax letters that it was the same people as 9-11, right? And that it was um, a, a Muslim group that was behind it. Right. And this is interesting when we go back yeah. to Dark Winter, right, with these smallpox letters, um, like the, the letters with the, the fingerprint of smallpox, like, you know, saying we are the people that were responsible for the smallpox attack and we'll do it again. Right. So this is sort of, you know, with the anthrax yeah. letters, it was like, we're the same people that did 9-11 um, and, and oh, yeah. we are now doing another anthrax attack. It's just another um, odd similarity. 
Oh, very, very odd, for sure. I mean, and also odd, too, that whoever wrote it um, cartoonishly wrote it out as Allah is great. I mean, if you're actually Muslim, you don't you either say Allahu Akbar or you just say God is great. No one actually types out or writes out Allah is great. So that's another hey, dead giveaway that Neo it's fake. <laughs> yeah, that's what I mean. Like some neocon <laughs> who didn't do his homework, uh, you know, on like the, the Islamic uh, culture. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. Oh, these guys. All right. Anyway, so speaking of neocons, um, I think it's important to point out uh, the Mike Pence press conference after uh, during the why the anthrax attacks were going on since, you know, we're talking about some parallels between Dark Winter anthrax and today. Um, it's worth, um, you know, mentioning his role back then since he's, you know, vice president now was playing a big or still is playing a big role in the coronavirus task force. Right. So, um, yeah, I mean, he was pushing, uh, the, you know, an aggressive stance, uh, you know, he was one of the only people, uh, politicians, uh, that was, um, involved in this anthrax scare that went to the press and used it as some kind of war on terror, you know, uh, fodder acting like, you know, we're, we're, this is basically the terrorists declaring war on us. Um, when, uh, no, none of the other politicians were involved in getting this, um, actually would said anything like that. Like they were pretty, uh, they were like pretty patient in the way and measured about the way they would talk about it. Um, even though the climate in the air at the time was like, yeah, you know, get, let's get these goddamn terrorists. Mike Pence was the, one of the only, or the the only sitting politician who did play into that, um, and he f- got his family filmed getting Cipro treatments at the hospital. I mean, the whole thing is just an odd spectacle that he put on about it. And also, I'm just gonna just throw this out there. Um, I didn't. I, I don't think I've actually said this in the Mint Press news article I wrote maybe like three years ago about this. But there's actually an odd disconnect between where the anthrax actually went in the Capitol building between that that location and where his office is. Um, it actually doesn't make very much sense how he got it in his office. So I don't know. I don't know what that means. It's just strange that it's it ended up in his office at all because um, if you look at the location of where his office was and where Leahy and Dashiell's like, you know, office was and where they got their mail, it's just not in the same area. So I don't know. It's just strange that he was the only other dude you know, to get anthrax on, on his desk, apparently. All right. Yeah, definitely weird. Another weird thing that we haven't mentioned yet is that there was anthrax detected or hoax letters sent to other countries, not just the U.S. Uh, there was, um, uh, I think, Japan, the United Kingdom, even China. Um, I think a country in Africa, also Israel, also claimed to have gotten one. Uh, so it was definitely... They should have done the Knesset, a- yeah. Oh, it was global, dude, yeah. It was happening yeah, everywhere. So, it was crazy. Yeah. So this was definitely like global fear mongering um, for sure. Like definitely designed whoever the attacker was to induce global panic, um, not just panic in the United States. So I think that's important to point that out because remember the, the push for the Iraq war that came from all of this, there was this push to get, you know, the coalition of the willing and get, you know, other countries besides the U.S. on board. Right. So very interesting that there was like this global um you know, global panic really about anthrax attacks. 
um, considering everything we're talking about, right? So um, I, I think I'm just going to really skip um, on a part of my article uh, now so we can go and just talk about the investigation into the attacks. But soon after this happened, there was this, um, after the, why, why the attacks were ongoing and, and well after they, they stopped, uh, major efforts from media not just in U.S. media, but international media as well, um, to basically link the 9-11 hijackers to the anthrax attacks and also blame um, Iraq for them, uh, including this guy that we mentioned earlier, Danny Shoham, <laughs> uh, who's now, you know, the guy basically that planted the seed for the coronavirus as a Chinese bioweapon narrative. Um, and then we also had the scandalous report from ABC News' Brian Ross about there being bentonite, in the anthrax that turned out to be completely made up and ABC News never retracted that story, which is just so uh, wild. Is there anything you want to add about that report? Because it was like one of the main ones. Well, it's strange because that's a, another example of the Bush administration playing dumb and possibly even coordinating an outside uh, group of people to spread that propaganda for them, you know, to deliberately leak something into the media, but then officially be like, no, yeah, we, we don't know if we agree with that, you know, because Ari Fleischer was kind of acting like it wasn't true after that Brian Ross report came out. So whoever leaked that, you know, was really determined to get that out there. Um, and but maybe not put the Bush administration's name to it. So that's what I find interesting about that specifically. So Ross, the guy that wrote this report for ABC, Brian Ross, he claimed to have uh, at first three well-placed but separate sources, and then it grew to four. Yes. Right? So he, like, added another one somewhere down the line. But um, uh -huh. Glenn Greenwald, who... Well, it's the same thing we see now. Right, I mean, right. they're saying now that the Wuhan bioweapons thing is, like, you know, all these people have all this evidence for it in the intelligence community now. And it's like there's a consensus building. It's like, who are all these yeah, people? Let, let, let's trust them again. Yeah. Well, thanks to Russiagate, I mean, so many people, at least on, you know, the quote unquote Democrat establishment, quote unquote resistance side, you know, um, are definitely really trusting in intelligence agencies. I mean, like now John Brennan, the CIA, former CIA director is like resistance guy. Bill Crystal is a resistance figure, <laughs> you know, so yeah. I guess it, it's all um, come full circle. How weird. But um about Brian Ross and, and this whole bentonite claim, something that's interesting, I didn't include this in my report, but Glenn Greenwald um, wrote several reports about um, this Ross story years after the fact and was like asking about why the story wasn't retracted, demanding answers from ABC about who Ross's sources were because it had, you know, resulted, uh, he argues convincingly that this was a major part of why so many people ended up supporting the war in Iraq at the time. And he actually uh, uses points out a quote um, where Dick Cheney was talking about his being in like Wyoming and talked about like how he'd go around and look for bentonite and like had an, an interest in, in the in like bentonite. Um, which is interesting. What? So he, yeah. So he well, <laughs> if you give me a second, I'll look up. I'll look up the quote. I mean, if we're just talking on a, just a basic level. You don't have to be a bioweapons expert to know how ridiculous the claim just sounds on its face because bentonite is just like saying like silica. It's just it's a very commonly found uh, uh, element, I think. I don't know if it's an element, but it's a actual like you can find it anywhere. It's not something that would be a signature, a secret signature you know, a way, like a hallmark of Iraq's biological weapons. I mean, it doesn't even make well, any goddamn said. sense. 
Yeah. So and, that, and they also I said mean, there so was why, silica why, in the anyone could do by it. the way, since you mentioned that. They also said there was silica in it, but bentonite was the only scary part, I guess. Yeah. It just it makes no <laughs> sense on its face. I mean, the real thing that they didn't want to mention at this point, and I don't know if you're withholding this, but I hope I'm not jumping the gun. The real thing that they didn't want to mention is that it had the hallmarks of the U.S. Biological Weapons Program because it's the AIM strain. And they already knew that, like, within... 72 hours of like examining this stuff so it's actually from a 2004 washington uh post profile on dick cheney and it's about his his wife recalling what they used to do in their early uh relationship and she says uh i knew when he was digging ditches out at the central wyoming fair and rodeo grounds and i knew him when he was loading bentonite 100 pound bags of bentonite onto railroad cars Weird. Apparently, Wyoming has like a, a large uh, bentonite mining operation. Wyoming and South Dakota. So interesting. Strange. Yeah. So anyway, he sort of suggests um, Greenwald does in a in a roundabout way that Dick Cheney had a was very interested in in bentonite. <laughs> uh, fancy that. Anyway. Um, yeah. So I totally don't remember that from Greenwald's article. Interesting. Yeah, well, I mean, I just reread it. I mean, obviously, if I'd read it in 2008, I probably wouldn't remember it now. But, um, <laughs> you know, it's okay. So, um, anyway, the, the next part of my article, we sort of touched on a little bit earlier, this basis system, this anthrax detection system that was being um, developed at the time. Um, basis stands for Biological Aerosol Sentry and Information Systems. Um it was developed, like I said, at the Livermore National Laboratory in Los Alamos, and then it was tested at, the, uh, at Dugway in Utah, which is another site of the U.S. bioweapons program, not just um, because Fort Detrick is the one that's been getting a lot more attention lately uh, because it was forced to shut down last year, and people that think uh, coronavirus was a bioweapon from the U.S. have, you know, sort of um, lasered in on that facility, right? But um, there's a lot of people that think the anthrax that was used in the attacks, even though the FBI officially said it came from Fort Detrick, um, some people think that it actually came from Dugway, which is interesting, especially when you consider... That Dugway, this is like mainstream media reporting, by the way. Dugway from 2005 to 2015 sent live anthrax to 86 labs, uh, most of them in the U.S., but some in other countries. Live anthrax over 70 times. It's so bizarre. I, I remember reading about all this, the different times they sent live anthrax. I don't, I don't get it. Allegedly, the reason they did it is because their process... The, the procedure that they did to make the anthrax like not dangerous and like um, inert essentially like harmless uh, didn't work and they didn't find out. I would argue that since it wasn't identified until, you know, the study or whatever that was done in 2015 that found that this has been going, they said it had been going on for at least a decade, meaning 2005 to 2015. But I think it's very possible, since it wasn't identified until so late, just five years ago, that this could have been going on. This type of like major biosafety issue at Dugway could have been going on in 2001 when the attacks happened. I mean, we don't really know, right? And there was no investigation into this. And even when, you know, what's, what's really disturbing is when a lot of these biosafety lapses happen at U.S. bioweapons labs, like... What happened at, at Fort Detrick last year when it was closed by the CDC, the Pentagon did not tell Congress. They tried to cover this up. 
and they were pressuring the CDC behind closed doors to reopen the facility so much that the CDC let them re partially reopen in November, even though they hadn't fixed all the safety issues that they'd but identified. China lied. Some... <laughs> China lied. People died, Whitney. We, we need to let China. But can you imagine how ridiculous it would be if people were like, we need to let China or China demanded they investigate Fort Detrick? To like send inspectors in, which is what all these people are demanding of this Wuhan bioweapons lab or Wuhan lab. Now it's like it's just bullshit. Anyone that Anyways, actually sorry. looks at the at the Wuhan virology lab honestly, objectively looks at this information, you will clearly see very deep U.S. ties. Period. There were a ton of U.S. government ties to that facility, and actually, the Fort Detrick lab had a close tie. Uh, a long-standing partnership dating back to the 1980s with the Wuhan Institute of Medical Virology, right? So, like, uh, anyone that's yeah. just saying that this research was China-exclusive and that these viral virology institutes were China-exclusive and not even mentioning the obvious U.S. involvement there, I mean, that is just 100% limited hangout. 100%. Yep. Well, anyway, sorry. We're, so we're talking about this basis thing. I already mentioned earlier, right, that this was, um, they, they knew before they installed it that it had false positives. It basically, they admitted uh, the National Laboratory that made it uh, said that the, this, you know, system induces panic, <laughs> basically. False positives, it induces yeah. panic. It doesn't really work, but still buy it anyway so you can guard the air that we breathe. <laughs> That's like what this report says. It's like the weirdest report you'll ever read. Um, I think, at, at least in terms of, like, of a marketing perspective, you know, like, not, <laughs> it's just bizarre, right? So, anyways, I said it was um, deployed in 30 cities, and now uh, the, the sequel to Basis is BioWatch, the BioWatch program, which has had all these different um, tie-ins since then, and um, is pretty, pretty interesting, Um also, um, this is a little interesting caveat too about like the the, the sequel uh, to Basis. Uh, the company that's now uh, like about to get, or I think they did get the contract for for the new BioWatch system. Uh, they're actually the same guy that runs that system is also the co-founder of um, the diagnostic uh, testing company that just got FDA approval for the forty five minute COVID nineteen test. So, um, oh, great. so, you know, these same players That's just great. keep popping up in different weird ways. <laughs> so, you know, anyway, so I think we've, um, covered a lot of, uh, the other details of the article pretty well. So let's get into the investigation. Yeah, let's do it. I was also just wondering how, wonder how much each one of those systems costs individually, like how many millions of dollars. I mean, they're probably such a boondoggle dude. I talk about in part two, just like how much of a money dump biodefense has been. I mean, they've just been pouring it into like these, either these vaccine companies for vaccines. No one's ever used because they have like a three year shelf life. So we've been yeah. spending like billions of dollars stockpiling all these vaccines. No one's ever used and they go bad and they have to be continually renewed. Right. I mean, it's the ultimate racket. Um, honestly, uh, these government contracts there. And it is a ton of money that gets blown on that stuff. It's just um, out of control. So I'm sure on the basis system, they were like, oh, $100 million per machine. It was probably more than that, honestly. But they were like, hmm, that's nothing. Yeah. Let's buy, you know, 50, even though they don't work. Oh, my God. Yeah, it's <laughs> wild. 
I mean, I know that yeah. it costs something in the neighborhood of uh, $40 million to clean up the Brentwood Postal Service. That's how much the contract was for Sabre. So, you know, it seems a little overblown to me. Um, but uh, the, yeah. um, the companies that did the anthrax cleanup had some weird ties to Rudy Giuliani, Jerome Howard's old boss. Yeah, well, uh, Sabre Technologies, uh, they're a defense contractor company. Uh, they have a lot of ties to biodefense. Uh, they were hired uh, by the government, given these no-bid contracts uh, for these giant payouts for cleaning up postals, uh, a couple postal buildings. And somehow, Rudy Giuliani got involved in this anthrax cleanup racket with Sabre Technologies after he left uh, mayor uh, of New York City. And uh, he he started his own company called Bio One, which uh, didn't do much work except for got a contract to clean up, do pro bono cleanup, which is odd, um, almost like a publicity stunt. Like he wanted to, you know, this to be like his opening salvo for advertising this new anthrax cleanup company of his, um, where he offered to clean up the Florida National Enquirer AMC building where Robert Stevens uh, was infected with anthrax. And in the process of trying to clean up this building, uh, and he brought in a bunch of press and news cameras, and he did press conferences from the building, you know, proud of, uh, of announcing this cleanup job. Uh, in the midst of all this, employees from the AMC building started to file lawsuits against Rudy Giuliani and his company for basically trying to destroy their documents. Um, Rudy Giuliani uh, basically at a certain point said, you know, we're not going to be able to clean this stuff up. We're just going to have to destroy everything in the building. <laughs> So it's very suspicious. So I don't know what the hell his actual role was there. I just know that a letter was never found and no actual proof was found of how Robert Stevens got infected with anthrax. So maybe Rudy Giuliani was involved in somehow destroying evidence or, you know, maybe it goes back to the whole tie in with uh, the guy who runs the National Enquirer, you know, uh, uh, having a weird connection to the 9-11 hijackers renting an apartment to them. There's so many yeah, strange connections with just that. Yeah, his wife was the real estate agent that rented out to, I think, two of the, hi the hijackers. Yeah. And that was like never so, explained. Yeah. So anyway, <laughs> the investigation. So we already talked about a little bit about how the investigation was farcical. Um, when we talked about this this letter that was accusing this Egyptian scientist of being a biological terrorist and the FBI said, we're not interested in who sent that letter, even even though it was curiously timed, you know, it's not of interest to us. Right. So like. Obviously, if you're like, if you're just like a kid that like has played, you know, a couple Nancy Drew video games and read the books or whatever, like you would think, ah, that would be my first clue. Well, the FBI didn't think that, but there's a lot of other things that the FBI, um, a lot of uh, really odd decisions that were made in the very early days of the investigation, um, including the destruction of the entire database on the Amstrain of Anthrax, which is the one using the attacks. Uh, the FBI called up the University of Iowa where that database um, existed and basically ordered that the university destroyed it. The university complied. Yeah. And the official reason for uh, for this was so that ter terrorists uh, could not use the aim strain in an anthrax attack in the future. And they said it was a precaution. Yeah, even, yeah. Even though it made it literally impossible to find out exactly where the anthrax used in the attacks came from. How convenient. And also, I just wanted to go back a little bit. Before the FBI even got involved, Whitney, one of the interesting things that the Bush administration did and the Justice Department did 
was they let the CDC be in charge of the anthrax investigation for like a week after Robert Stevens died. You know, seems like a really strange thing for them to do. There's, I mean, there's, I can't think of a greater example Super than weird. playing totally dumb when they had been sending out neocon surrogates into the press to plant the seeds of an incoming anthrax attack. You know, more, well, you, you know, know putting out all this insinuation. The, what? Um, the CDC, so Ernesto Blanco, right, was one of these guys that worked in the same building as, as Bob Stevens, and he ended up uh, being hospitalized yeah. for anthrax exposure. But actually, it was the CDC refused for the longest time to officially allow him to be diagnosed with anthrax exposure. Oh, yeah. And, and his, his family, family was very upset about yeah, that. They yeah, they were, like, really mad and, like, um, said it was, like, politically motivated and all this stuff. So why would the CDC, like, be trying to, like, not diagnose someone? Like, were they trying to cover something up? It's all super weird um, why the CDC would, you know, be political like that. And, of course, you know, now with the whole coronavirus response, we've seen some weird things go on with the CDC, too, some weird claims um, being made um, about like exactly when the first coronavirus cases were in the U.S. and if they were actually happening last year. Uh, the CDC director recently made some, you know, odd claims that were on C-SPAN and then like the Chinese government tweeted out and they were like, hey, look, it wasn't our fault. You know, I don't know. Just a lot of so much weird yeah. finger pointing going on these days. Um, but interesting to note that, you know, it's not the first time the CDC has been, you know, um, in a weird position like that, right? So, um, I was just going to say, it could have also been to delay the FBI being able to respond. You know, let's say, you know, this this idea that there's these white hats, you know, people maybe like Richard Lambert inside the FBI who actually did want to get to the bottom of what was actually happening, right. regardless of where it went. Right. Um, and by delaying, you know, if you're if you're delaying the FBI's response for about a week to an active crime scene. That's a that's a lot of important evidence that could be destroyed during that time period. The CDC hey, doesn't true. have the 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 wherewithal or the understanding to like trace. You know, they they weren't in charge of figuring out where how Robert Stevens got infected. It's a division, right, of the Department of Health and Human Services. So remember, during this time, uh, the Department of Health and Human Services is being advised. All their national their their only national security advisor at the time was Jerome Hauer, right? And uh, the general counsel to HHS was Alex Azar, <laughs> who's the current head of um, HHS today, right? Um, but Jerome Hauer was there during this whole time, wow. and he was managing a lot of the HHS's national security response. So I think the fact the CDC was put in charge, a division of HHS, why, why Jerome Hauer was there is definitely interesting, considering everything we've talked about with Jerome Hauer's background. Yeah, that is very interesting. All right, so a couple other things to go over with the investigation. So like, like um, we were saying in the early days, so there was the destruction of the AIM strain. They didn't follow up on this letter. Um, there seemed to be a lot of, you know, odd things going on um, that were, you know, um, basically they look, they look pretty transparently like a, a cover-up. Um, one thing that also happened, I think, uh, in the first couple months is that in one of the samples, the anthrax sample, I think it was the one that was sent, uh, to Senator Patrick Leahy's office, it had traces of human DNA in it. And uh, the FBI laboratory didn't like deliberately concealed that from the agent from from like the people investigating the case, right? So they're like, 
you would think if there's human DNA and like a bioweapon sample, it would like lead you to the actual attacker. And the FBI laboratory was like, hmm, this isn't important. The, like the top crime scene laboratory in the country was like, human DNA, not interested. Even though it's like an active terrorist oh, well, homicide investigation. <laughs> human DNA. Yeah, I remember. I think you're talking about the saliva from the stamp, maybe, right? Was maybe on one of them. I, maybe I'm mixing that up, but there was also, um, yeah, the fact that they wouldn't look into that. And another thing they didn't look into is, you know, whenever a killer, in this case a murderer, um, is using handwritten letters in his crimes or in their crimes, the handwriting analysis of your suspects uh, or just, you know, handwriting analysis in general would be one of the main things that you do. And we hear very little of that. In fact, we actually hear an FBI st uh, spokesperson saying that handwriting analysis um, w wouldn't have helped in this case, so they didn't perform it. And it's just like, what? Like, wh why would you have not done that? That's on, like, every forensic show I've ever seen that involves a letter and a crime. So. Hey, but that's just TV, Robbie. That's not how the pros do it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I guess you're right. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. All right. So another thing to point out about the early days of the investigation um, is that Robert Mueller, who was the director of the FBI at the time, and of course now another resistance hero, right? Um, he was heavily pressured by the Bush administration in the very early days of the investigation, even when they knew it was the AIM strain too, right? That he needed to blame someone uh, from the Middle East, uh, specifically Osama bin Laden, and they were like pushing him really hard. And uh, clearly this was, you know, um, an obvious effort by the executive branch to not just politicize, but directly manipulate um, the investigation into the anthrax attacks. And, you know, th this is just one example that ended up coming out a couple years later, but it's very likely that that type of manipulation uh, from the executive branch or people that were associated with the Bush administration or maybe even Dark Winter, um, you know, sort of getting involved in this. It's worth pointing out, too, that some of the Dark Winter people, like Tara O'Toole, Thomas Inglesby, these John Hopkins guys, they ended up, once this whole um, narrative that was seeded in the media about the anthrax attacks being Iraq and being linked to the 9-11 hijackers and all of this stuff, um, once that started to fall apart, it was actually O'Toole and Inglesby that wrote this quote-unquote independent analysis of um, an event that had happened in June 2001, I believe, where one of the um, alleged hijackers went to a hospital because he had a lesion on his leg. And um, yeah. the doctor that looked at it at the time said it, it could have been like cutaneous anthrax. Which actually is like, yep. you know, people might, might you know, think, oh, that's so rant, like, the, oh, that must mean they had anthrax, right? Well, cutaneous anthrax, you know, happens a lot for like farm workers and rural workers and stuff like that. That's actually one of the reasons the anthrax vaccine was originally developed. It was originally developed for like farm workers, right? So, um, yeah. It doesn't necessarily mean exposure to like weapons grade anthrax made in a, in like a, you know, US military bioweapons lab, right? Um, and, and no, but it does mean it, there are some definitely some weird connections between the hijackers and anthrax that can't be ignored, though. Like the crop duster thing by itself is a strange, you know, connection. Definitely, definitely weird. I think there was definitely a plan to have what happened with the anthrax attacks happen on like a much bigger scale. And it ended up something ended up going wrong. Right. Like all these oddities and stuff Perhaps. It really makes me feel like there may have been um, some other plan in the works that just did ended up not working out 
Um, like if you think about tripod yeah, knows, for instance, yeah. like, you know, so that was a big bioweapons drill set to take, take place on the day after 9-11, but considering the events of 9-11, you know, if, if there had been plans to do something like that, maybe people were so on alert, uh, that it just ended up, you know, a key part of that ended up not being able to happen if that was a plan or something. I know I sound a little conspiratorial here, but honestly, it just seems kind of, um, you know, probable at this point because we're dealing with, you know... In a, in a, an attack that has a bunch of weird oddities about it, a deliberate cover-up, clear ties to the U.S., um, you know, military's bioweapons research, um, efforts to try and use this to blame people in Iraq, you know, the whole dark winter thing. When you look at it all together, that type of speculation, you know, I'm not saying that's the case. I'm just sort of pointing out that, like, maybe we should, like, re-examine this stuff, uh, you know, since it's been so long. <laughs> uh, and everything that's happened since, right? It just sort of, you know... Um, you know, uh, is a good way to try and like revisit these these past events and maybe find something that other people have missed, right? Yeah, I mean, even after, and there was plenty of people in the FBI too. Immediately after, you know, there were people in the FBI who immediately knew this was the AIM strain, um, internally, and there was leaks coming out through the press, like you know, months, like within like several months after the anthrax attacks, saying that it appears to be a domestic source but yet um they still continue to try to sell the iraq war based on largely a lot of it was based on the anthrax fears so even though you know that was already known about it was you know there was some kind of mechanism probably in place to make sure that that narrative was buried until you know the iraq war got started and then after that it didn't really matter i mean once we once oh, we actually got a conclusion to this investigation, it was almost like at that point people had lost interest because um, of so mm. much crazy stuff that had happened since then. So uh, you could argue that you know they purposely just sidelined it and then just you know waited it out or something. But we could talk about you know where it eventually led. This investigation, right, um, which I should probably point out um, that the name of this investigation, it's, it's called Amerithrax. It's like the case file name, the Amerithrax investigation for people that are interested. Um, the lead investigator who you've mentioned a couple times was this guy named uh, Richard Lambert. He was the lead investigator on Amerithrax. He ended up resigning, actually, in 2006, and he claimed... Um, he filed a whistleblower lawsuit, actually, after he left, and he said that he had been... Um, obstructed from the highest levels, like deliberately misled. I mean, he, he lobbies a lot of really heavy accusations of the FBI over um, the handling of the case um, by his superiors and, and other people too, right? So um, he uses a specific term in it. So he says that evidence was stovepiped to him, meaning that there were people above him or around him basically conspiring to hide evidence to make it appear that Bruce Ivins was, uh, I guess, the more guilty party than some of these other suspects that we're looking at. Right, and this is this is the Robert Mueller FBI, by the way, everyone. You know, he was still there during, like, this whole investigation. So, yeah. you know, it was people that were, you know, if it was coming from the top, that guy probably knew about it. Just worth pointing pointing that out. So, um, another thing that, that Lambert says, since we're talking about um, Ivan's, uh, the guy that eventually, uh, at least in the official story, took the fall... Um, for what happened uh, with the anthrax attacks. 
uh, Lambert claimed that the FBI, um, not only did they stovepipe this evidence to try and paint even, uh, Ivans as the guilty party, but he says they also hid what he said, a mountain of exculpatory evidence, basically evidence exonerating Ivans. Um, and just like deliberately withheld uh, information that would have exonerated this guy and show and show that he was innocent. And they were just so desperate, I guess, to pin mm-hmm. this on someone um, after like almost 10 years of investigating and spending all this money and still not having a culprit, right? That they ended up just like using every dirty trick in the book to try and, um, you know, uh, essentially frame this guy who ended up uh, committing quote-unquote suicide before the case was going to go to trial. So obviously the FBI's um, rather flimsy case against him uh, never had to be challenged in the court. So it just became the official story, right? Because no independent experts could challenge it, though even after the case was closed, I believe it was closed in 2010, um, they ended up, uh, there ended up being independent analyses that just slammed the FBI um, saying that, you know, their quote-unquote smoking gun against Bruce Ivins was hardly that. It was like totally non-conclusive um, evidence and it could have been Ivins and a number of people. I think the the smoking gun uh, relating to the, the flat, this flask uh, of anthrax uh, that Ivins had provided to the FBI, um, they, that was part of their smoking gun and it turns out that up to 400 people had access to that. And, and used it. So that means, you know, Ivan's was one of 400 possible suspects if that's the so-called smoking gun, right? I mean, that's just so criminal. So the, the FBI, um, this is really funny what they actually did is they originally were going to work in tandem with the National Academy of Sciences. Um, they were going to export some of their, you know, DNA analysis to the National Academy of Sciences to verify some of their theories. And what they did was they closed the case right after Ivan's committed suicide before the NAS had actually concluded with their own independent investigation to verify yeah, the FBI They, they released theories. their analysis a year um, later. So yeah. the NAS initially, yeah, the NAS initially was probably, you know, polit- on a political level was just like, wait, so the FBI is just like, you know, they don't actually care about the results being verified. Okay. So they, I mean, they were continuing to, you know, they're, fu- they were funded to do this anyway. So they continued to do it and they showed that the FBI's theories were completely not valid. Um, and that the DNA, you know, results that they claimed that they got that match it to Bruce Ivins was, was BS. So it was just a, a, you know, a very petty political maneuver by the FBI almost. Um, and to and and they I guess they were just hoping that barely any people would pay attention by the time that the NAS concluded with their own results. Um, so I don't know. I mean, it was just it seems like a strange thing to do. And then also, Robert Mueller didn't even show up at this press conference that they gave oh when they announced they were closing <laughs> the case. Yeah. In fact, he he I was actually that. apparently so ashamed. Um, you know, I, I don't know if he you know what kind of uh conflict he was having at the time but he was across the street eating lunch he refused to show his face um and instead sent some underlings out to discuss the case who seemed like completely unprepared sweating nervous um just being hammered by the press asking really hard questions not having any good answers i mean it was a pretty awkward uh press conference to watch to see them announcing this the closure of the case 
I think it's because they were so heavily criticized before they even announced the, these in, this independent, um, you know, investigation with the National Academy of Sciences. I mean, uh, that was that um, that panel on from NAS. Uh, you know, uh, Mueller only brought them in, into this because of how heavily criticized he, uh, you know, the FBI was. Um, after this investigation and how a lot of reports and a lot of people, including former co-workers of Ivan's and like top, like actual top anthrax experts in the country, like um, this guy, Richard Spurzel, he wrote in the, in the Wall Street Journal saying there's no way Ivan's could have been the culprit. Um, there's no way only one person could have made the anthrax of the quality used in the attacks. And this is something that, that Patrick Leahy, the senator, also said. There's no way this was a, a lone yeah. wolf attack. But this, this Spurzel guy said that there were only four to five people in the entire U.S., including himself, who were capable of making that anthrax. And in order to make it, they would have needed an entire year and a full lab and staff dedicated to producing it. And that's why I think, you know, what I mentioned earlier about Philip Zack is really interesting because he was at Gilead. He had, he, he you know, got in charge of the special project. Um, several months before the anthrax attacks happened and he, you know, was managing this new department. I mean, and there's the Rumsfeld tie. I, I, I don't know. If I was the FBI, I would have looked at Philip Zack. You know what I mean? So like, I think <laughs> it, it's yeah. like relevant, the stuff he was doing at the time and the fact that Rumsfeld like had, you know, this whole restructure of R&D right before he leaves becomes head of the Pentagon. You know, it's just like, Man, I, I really wish uh, <laughs> so, some of this information that's been hidden from the public in relation to this FBI case would, would just come out. Because actually, um, major S aspects of the FBI case are still classified and also members of the U.S. intelligence community and I think also military intelligence refused to cooperate with the FBI. That's something we forgot to mention. Their intelligence totally stonewalled the FBI and said, no, we're not uh, collaborating. Right. So um, I don't know. Well, I could see the like CIA the not collaborating. Right. But so, sort of like the 9-11 investigation, just being stonewalled and lied to by officials. Right. So. Well, there's, there's the guy that I interviewed, um, that guy, Matt DeHart who's still in jail. I think he's only got a couple of years left um, on his term. Uh, but he uh, claims that he got a cache of documents from an FBI whistleblower on the Amerithrax case, who this FBI whistleblower um, believed it to be the work of the CIA. Like, not just a rogue CIA element, but the work, like some kind of institutional operation conducted by people within the CIA. Um and, hey man, it's possible. Yeah, and uh, and interestingly, one of the, I guess, one of the main pieces of smoking gun evidence was a radiation trail that that I guess traced it back to something that was associated with the CIA, which was apparently a Battelle lab. Um, and Dick Cheney, according to some of these documents, was the one who quashed a Nuclear Regulatory Commission investigation into this radiation trail. So apparently, if someone could find these documents, apparently the Nuclear Regulatory Commission was hired at some point, possibly even by the FBI, just like they hired the NAS, to conduct radiation trail research to like actually trace the track where the anthrax went or came from. Um, because radiation wow. um, leaves like a pretty permanent trail. Like if you, know, if you try to ship a radioactive element 
across, you know, through the through the mail system, you'll be able to track it. Um, and in this case, yeah, for cobalt a long time, radiation. Depending on the half life, right? Yeah. yeah. So wow. in this case, cobalt radiation was the method that was being used to kill live anthrax. And this Matt to Heart story is worth looking into. And hopefully someday those documents do come out. Didn't really introduce Patel, did we? Uh, and since you mentioned it, it, it might be worth uh, just introducing briefly. Um, so it's like this private yeah, corporation, go go ahead. Uh, based in Ohio, I believe, and it manages a lot of the U.S.'s national laboratories. I think most of them actually. Like it, it manages Livermore, it manages Los Alamos, and, and several other ones. But it's technically a private corporation, and people have le- alleged for a very long time it has really close ties. Um, to U.S. intelligence, the CIA specifically. So um, uh, anything you want to add to that? No, other than the Lawrence Livermore Lab is a really sketchy, weird place. I, I grew up right next to it. Um, I didn't realize until I got older that it was actually managed by a private corporation, Battelle. Um, but uh, they're doing some weird stuff over there. I mean, they still do like quasi-nuclear tests at Lawrence Livermore Lab. And people don't even realize it. Um, and that a lot of crazy. children have died, uh, or not died, but a lot of there's been a much higher infection rate in the Livermore area of malignant melanoma than in other parts of the country. Um, plutonium oh, was leaked into the water supply from people doing research at Lawrence Livermore Lab because they used dry cleaners for their lab coats. Um, that had part plutonium particles on them, and they got into the water supply. You can't get that out once it's in the water supply. No. So I grew up in a in a city, right? You know, using sharing the water with a a, a, a lab that was pouring p- plutonium particles in the water supply. Um, so oh, I might man. have drinking some of that shit growing up. I'm gonna, I'm gonna get, get cancer. cancer. Oh man, that yeah, that's just so criminal. Well, actually, what's interesting uh, to point out since we've been talking a bit about Fort Detrick is that one of the biosafety violations that led to their closure last July was because they were not decontaminating their wastewater. And apparently around the same time, like late last year, um, there were some weird illnesses going around in the Maryland area, not that far from Fort Detrick, but I haven't seen that many people um, try and connect uh, those illnesses necessarily to coronavirus, but I think it's really disturbing just the, the insane... Um, frequency with which, uh, you know, these U.S. biodefense or, or bioweapons labs just have these insane uh, biosafety violations time and again. I mean, it's a pattern. I mean, so many of them. You think any one of these huge biosafety lapses would have resulted in like a huge overhaul uh, of how... Um, the the uh, of the precautions that are taken at these facilities, like you know, Dugway shipping live anthrax all over the country for like ten, at least ten years. You think in 2015 they would have been like, oh well, that's a huge screw up. We should totally fix things. The Pentagon says no, right? And and then it clo- <laughs> in Fort Detrick gets gets closed last year, and they try and cover it up, and then the the Congress finds out, and they they send them angry letters, and the Pentagon's like, meh, you know, it's just like. So wild. Um, I mean, they're they're putting Americans' lives just like directly in danger, and they just don't care. You know what I mean? It's just it, it's a mess. Um, but anyway, going back yeah, to FBI and here we are talking about China. <laughs> yeah, China. yeah, the the Chicoms. You know, uh, well, Alex <laughs> Jones was just saying. Um, I think it was yesterday or the day before that. Now we have to round up the Chicoms and murder them, right? So. Um, 
I think yeah. we're definitely seeing the rhetoric starting to get in in a real crazy direction. Um, but I digress. Uh, the Amerithrax investigation. I think there's a couple um, things that are worth adding um, about Bruce Ivan specifically. Um, so I mentioned earlier that he allegedly committed suicide right before this was going to go to trial. Um, and I just want to point out that there are some odd things about this so-called suicide. For one thing, there was no suicide note um, and no autopsy was ever performed on Bruce Ivinson's body. He is alleged to have overdosed on Tylenol um, at the time of his death. He was under 24-7 surveillance by the FBI. If you overdose with Tylenol, um, it is not only a bad way to go, it's also a long way to go. And apparently, even though this guy was under 24-7 surveillance, uh, the FBI didn't really realize that he had slipped into a coma for a long period of time. And apparently they, they delayed um, and withheld crucial information from the hospital that treated Ivan's and um, he ended up dying. No suicide note. Right. I mean, even like people that were really clear, in my opinion, very clearly suicided, like Danny Casolaro, for example, uh, in, in the early 90s, uh, they at least had a suicide note there, you know. <laughs> this is what I've only read from uh, this guy named Spencer Ackerman. And I don't really know if I trust some of his anthrax coverage because he, oh, believes he writes that, for the Daily Beast, though. Yeah, he, he believes that um, that that uh, Ivan's is guilty, I think. But he he mentioned something in a story which I haven't really looked into too much, or apparently there was something half written on a piece of glass or something. So they want, so like apparently that's his quote unquote suicide note is a non legible, like him attempting to write a sentence on something, but with his hand, like with in blood or something. I don't really even know. I'm probably getting the details wrong, but you know, there was no actual note. I mean, you're right. I don't even, I'm not trying to contradict what you're saying. Um, but I just remember right. reading that. Well, e even if there was like this half scrawled note on glass, <laughs> I just think it's really odd that there was no autopsy done. You know oh, what I mean? Course. At oh, least, yeah, yeah. I mean, even, even Jeffrey Epstein allegedly got an autopsy, you know what I mean? And, well, and family, Bruce Ivins can't get one. The, fa the whole family situation is interesting because no press has ever spoken to them. They probably don't want to speak to the press. They probably could have asked for an autopsy if they wanted one. Maybe they got pressure from the FBI not to. Like, it's actually really interesting to it'd be interesting to find out what they think and if they'd be willing to go on record and talk about his death. Because apparently, before he died, um, they the FBI was already trying to build a case against him, and they visited, I guess, Bruce Ivan's sick son in the hospital. I don't know if you've heard this story, where they were showing the sick son of Bruce Ivins, who was in the hospital for some reason, pictures of dead anthrax victims saying, your father did this. Like, fess up. Like, we know your yeah. dad did this. So, yeah, like, they did do that. So, like, yeah. they were trying to intimidate his family. And then after he dies, it's just, like, silence from the family. So I'm wondering what happened there. You know, we know Hatfield got a $6 million settlement. But what happened with the Ivins family? Do they think their dad's guilty? Well, I mean, what, like, do they not? Do they? What's the deal there? I mean, it'd be interesting to find out. The FBI out. did offer his kids money for them to turn on their dad and say that he was uh, the guy that did it. So, like millions. Yeah. Like they offered him, like, yeah, it's very, that very. That's just so sick to offer like someone's kid money to like send them to prison when you know they're not guilty. You know, just like. 
Man, the FBI, not only do they like create, essentially create a lot of the quote unquote terrorism cases that they end up foiling right before they happen, but they also do shit like this, you know? It's just like, this is, this is our, you know, top law enforcement agency in the country. This is the stuff they do on their big high profile investigations. Man, how depressing. And they also try to um, cherry pick and show you examples of his like mental instability and how he was some kind of like potential psychopath and the stuff that they show you like if you actually look through the fbi case file it's stuff that a lot of like right-winger type people were saying and expressing after 9-11 like patriotic catholic (laughs) yeah yeah i mean it's like patriotic stuff like i don't even think it was any like anti-muslim stuff he said but if you read if you look through all of it it's like this really isn't that bad and the strongest evidence they try to use against against him in this public case because it really is just like a case of public opinion like against him because the case is closed you know it's like he's dead they're not going to be a trial but that the evidence that they tried to use and that they leaked this into the press too was that a I guess some court appointed psych- psychotherapist of his um, in a yeah. group session uh, heard him say that he wants to murder all his coworkers or something like that. And apparently it turns out that she had some kind of outstanding warrant um, and that she cooperated perhaps with, oh, the, yeah. with authorities. Is it, is it, uh, this, this is Dooley, right? John. Yes. So Dean that's yeah. that, if you want to like really get technical about it and comb through all the evidence you know, because we already know the DNA evidence we're trying to link him to is bogus. So, but if you want to look at the circumstantial evidence, that's the maybe the strongest thing they have, and that even falls apart. You know, in some of these statements he's made, you know, totally. If anything, it's like, well, no, maybe he was just a neocon. Well, then, okay, well, if he's a neocon from these little emails you're showing, where he's talking about how he's mad about like. Um, you know, like not being like uh, people not practicing like Judaism strictly enough and then like also talking shit about Iraq, um, then like every neocon's a potential suspect, you know? Like why just one of these employees, <laughs> why an employee at one of these labs who's a, a quote-unquote super patriot, if that's what you want to call him, versus uh, a neocon who has like access to like every like alphabet agency in the country, you know, who works directly for Bush. I mean... <laughs> this Dooley lady, right, that that said that made this claim against Ivans, she also uh, took out a restraining order against him right before he died, right? And the media took this as like proof that the guy must huh. have been really dangerous. But actually, it turns out the FBI told her to get the restraining order. It was not her idea; it was the FBI's idea. And like you said, she has that she had uh, several outstanding warrants for DUI, and she didn't get charged with any of them she just got let totally off the hook i guess in exchange for that restraining order and saying all that stuff about ivan's seems um pretty odd this lady so just really um um, it's a mess this this whole thing that happened to bruce ivan's it's really sad and i'm not saying like the guy was a good guy either like he definitely said some kind of weird stuff but i mean the way they cherry picked this stuff was really crazy and there was another story too about uh trying to say that he was trying to paint him as this crazy guy saying that he uh, had been really inter- like obsessed with a sorority that he like went on some oh, date. stalking them. Yeah, but it was like yeah. years ago and then it turned out it wasn't actually stalking and like it was just like the weird it was an associated press article. That was their other article. big play. That was their other big play. Was trying to link the location of the mailbox to the sorority 
and that was like, oh, bingo, we got him. It's like that's that, now it's him. That was but they yeah, weren't was super even weak. close. No, <laughs> which is like no, it's it was, like the dumbest story. It is. Oh, the, none of it. None of it adds up. This guy died, but I mean, they're just but, they're just bumbling idiots. And there's another way to look at this too. I mean, I I don't know if he was suicided or not. I mean, my opinion on it, I've always been on the fence about that. And part of me thinks, you know, that the FBI could have also driven him to suicide. I mean, that's also a possibility. Uh, if he already had a history of mental illness or maybe he had attempted suicide in the past, um, you know, it might have not been that much yeah, to tip him over possible. the edge. I mean, they already, uh, by, by, in terms of like what you read about how they were trying to intimidate him, um, it can make sense that that could have happened. I'm not saying that's what actually did happen. The the idea of that he would want to commit suicide by taking Tylenol is insane. Um, for being, you know, a, a person who probably had expertise and I'm sure he knew more about pharmaceuticals than the average person. So to choose Tylenol, you know, of all people, um, a, a doctor or a, a scientist working at a biological weapons lab, it just seems rather odd to do. But I'm just saying that... Um, right. That... You could make but, someone. Like, what if he used something that would have killed him way faster? I mean, why would you pick like one of the like a super no. painful way to get? You know, it just seems really odd. I mean, I don't know. I mean, I, I tend to lean towards you know suicided on on his case. Just but mm -hmm. yeah, according to Graham McQueen, um, there was another suspect that they were looking at early on uh, before uh, they moved on to Hatfield and Bruce Ivins. Um, who returned to drinking. He relapsed um, into alcoholism. He had been sober for like 20 years. And uh, he he had just told his colleagues like how upsetting the experience was from the FBI and how they were treating him. But I think he was also a Fort Detrick employee. So at that point, the heat was on. It was like a lot of these employees that worked there knew that they could be in the sights of the FBI next. And that was apparently part of the reason why Bruce Ivins decided to reach out and actually uh, try and help the FBI. Yes, try and help them. And he, he did. He gave them, yeah. For like, a, for like a year. Yeah, he was like actively helping them with the investigation. Well, I guess that is a valuable lesson about trying to help out the FBI. Yeah, don't talk to the police. <laughs> Rule number one, do not talk to the police. Yeah. <laughs> That's basically the moral of the story, <laughs> uh, <you> know, the <laughs> Amerithrax story. What do you know? Well, um, we've run, I think, over uh, two and a half hours, man, um, talking about we really in-depth, really awesome information about the anthrax stuff, a ton of stuff, um, and commentary that was not in the article itself. So anyone that likes to nerd out as much as me... <laughs> about stuff like this hopefully you enjoyed this episode a big thanks to robbie um for you know hanging out and discussing all this stuff uh and and you know lending me you know over two hours of your time thanks a lot um i'll be posting uh this episode and all subsequent episodes first to my patreon it'll be up there for a day or two and then i'll be making it publicly available um, so a big shout out to all my patrons. Thanks so much for supporting me and my upcoming book on the Jeffrey Epstein scandal. Yeah, so that's it for the first episode of Unlimited Hangout. See you guys next time. <laughs>